All right, I do believe we are live. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Break the Rules live stream. I'm your host, Love Polyakov, coming at you today with a stream about Nietzsche and Christianity, whether we should consider Nietzsche to be the uh, predictor of our society going in the direction that it's currently been going as far as the general weakness that people perceive, so on and so forth, or whether Christianity is something that's actually going to bring society back to its uh, roots, so to speak. And with us, we have the wonderful Uber Boyo back again. We have Classical Theus for the first time, newcomer to the show. Thank you so much, Classical Theus, for coming in here today. And we're going to have Neil Nasikin Foreman coming in uh, pretty soon as well. So uh, be sure to smash that subscribe button, smash that like button, and uh, as well as click the bell. And we're just going to get started. Classical Theus, brief introduction. Tell all the good people about who you are and why you think Nietzsche is wrong about Christianity, why Christianity is based, why Christianity is going to lead us down the right path, and then Uberboyo is going to go for the response, and we'll just take it from there. All right. Yeah, sounds good. Um, I guess what I would say, uh, first of all, is, you know, I, I go by the name Classical Theist. Um, I've kind of started a YouTube channel way back in 2017, uh, just because I kind of wanted to start putting out some philosophical metaphysical defenses of uh, Christian faith, uh, specifically and primarily the Catholic faith. Um, and I've kind of been doing that ever since on and off. Uh, that's kind of developed uh, mainly into my presence on Twitter, though, where I probably put out most of my content these days, Twitter and Telegram. Um, but I mean, that's just kind of the just just i guess some biographical information about me um a lot of people kind of know that i i'm also very supportive of um nick's whole movement as well so that's also kind of what people usually associate me with um but to the subject matter itself um i mean i'll concede right out of the gate that i'm not by any means like a nietzsche scholar i'm not a not an expert on nietzsche i haven't actually read too many of his works directly most of what i know of nietzsche is from uh secondhand sources uh like frederick copleston's uh, history of philosophy which i think is, is is usually pretty renowned as the most one of the most unbiased um treatments of the history of thought at least in the West. So uh, I just want to kind of preface with that. So I'm definitely open to being corrected about my interpretation of Nietzsche. I understand that his own words are usually not written very systematically. They're not usually written in what would, what, what most people would consider a uh, philosophical mode of expression. So that inevitably leads to a wide variety of various interpretations of what he meant, what he was actually trying to accomplish. Um, a lot of people kind of see his various stages in uh, thought, his, his, his uh, three main kind of stages of thought as not so much a uh, some kind of, uh, you know, desire on his part to like seek out the truth for its own sake, but kind of a, as a way of uh, testing his own abilities, so to speak, um, through these various uh, stages of his own thinking. Um, so, so again, wide variety of interpretation of what Nietzsche actually uh, meant. Uh, some people uh, don't think he was as hostile to Christianity as other people do. 
I kind of leave that open to various uh, exegetical scholars. Uh, but what I would say with respect to Christianity is that um, I certainly wouldn't discount everything he says about Christianity because uh, there is definitely a sense in which I, I know that he, for example, believes that democracy and uh, socialism, etc., are kind of derivatives of Christianity. And I would say that there's a certainly a sense in which that's true. However, I don't think that uh, these, we could say, political degradations are necessarily owed to uh, Christianity and its most authentic expression. I think that primarily comes out of a um, a uh, secularized uh, manifestation of certain elements that come out of Christianity, uh, but nevertheless, I would argue are corruptions thereof. So, to, I, I don't know if you want me to like in a few minutes just give like a pitch for for Christianity contra Nietzsche. Well, I, th I think I we're would... gonna we're gonna get to that uh, level after uh, Uberboyer responds. So I think you're going to be building up on what Uberboyo says and so on and so forth. And Neil's in the house as well. So welcome, Neil. Nasik and Florida. Yeah. Well, what I would say though, first and foremost, if I could just preface this conversation a little bit, um, I do think that a, a fundamental failure of Nietzsche though is his inability to really deal head on with the metaphysical foundations of Christianity. So I don't think he really. Uh, it, and it doesn't even seem primarily to even be his intention to uh, refute so much the truth claims of Christianity as, as if he's presenting some kind of alternative metaphysical vision of the cosmos. He doesn't really do much of that. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I, I would certainly concede that his notion of the will to power as sort of a uh, universal expression of uh the cosmos can be interpreted as a metaphysic, but I don't think he's, he's certainly not a metaphysician. In fact, he kind of looks down on the whole enterprise of metaphysics, the, the entire enterprise of uh, philosophical investigation into reality. However, I think that's fundamentally his problem. I think that if you don't address those questions, then any discussion of Christianity is ultimately going to be moot. It's, it's, it's going to be focusing on superficial elements of it, such as its uh, circumstantial impact on world events throughout uh, stages of, of, of history. While I think those questions are pertinent and interesting and we can talk about them, you really do have to get at what are the truth claims that underlie the Christian vision of the cosmos? And do they have merit or do they not have merit? And that is, that's inevitably going to lead you to ask questions about the existence of God, what is the nature of God, what is the nature of reality, what is man's place in the cosmos. And if those questions aren't addressed first and foremost, I think the rest of the discussion is kind of resting on very uh, shaky foundation. And, and, and the conversation might be interesting, but it's not ultimately going to be uh, significant. So I hope that we can at least get into a bit of that as well as discussing the more uh, uh, pragmatic implications of, say, the state of Christianity in the Western world today. So I guess that's kind of how I would preface things, at least. Thank you, Classical Theist. Steph, time to address everything the Classical Theist is talking about. It Go! 
Yes, all right, fantastic. Now, I'm not sure if my internet connection is that good, so if I'm constantly breaking up, please... Uh, oh, you're going to be better than what's going on now. I am actually streaming this through Starlink because my neighbors were chopping trees down and the tree fell right on the power line. And so my my internet is down. This is outer space internet right here. So thank okay, you, Elon no, Musk. But anyway, go for it. Me. We're yes. going, perhaps we're nearly going metaphysical if I'm to go in with the puns straight away. Thank now, you. um... Neil, how are you doing, man? Good, good. Um, Mr. Classical Theus, you present yourself very well. Thank you very much for the introduction. And I, I love the way you're approaching this and you're, you're being sincere about your the, maybe the horizons of your knowledge. So I should be sincere as well. I've talked to lots of Christians before and we constantly actually start to butt heads on the metaphysic thing. So maybe we'll actually get to that at some point. We could spend a bit of time talking about that because that's something where um, you'll, you'll kind of see what I mean as we go further into it. That does seem to be the, the, the place where the hammer falls. Now, I'd like to try frame the argument a couple of ways and try and make it uh, as accessible for you as possible because if you're not like super well-read in Nietzsche, I don't want to come in pretentiously and turn this into like an education of what Nietzsche actually meant. Um, I guess it's about establishing the situation. Like uh, we can both, we probably both align with the idea that the West is in a state of cultural decline in some sense or a cultural uh, crisis, we could put it this way. And even even both Nietzsche, both Nietzsche's worldview and the Christian worldview is suggesting that this is a bad thing. The liberals, for example, would be saying this is a fantastic thing. We're going in the right direction. Now, the thesis then comes is that, well, what is causing this? What is the, the driving force behind this? And I think the, the words that we hear an awful lot, I think this might be the easiest way to frame the argument, is the question of vitalism or moralism. So is this a situation where has Western man lost his vitality? Did he have some type of fire in his belly? And he had that for the last th thousands of years. And because of comfort or a variety of different reasons, Nietzsche, for example, might even accuse Christianity of this, but we'll get into that later. Because of whatever reason, that vitality has died out and he has lost his will. He cannot, he no longer has a strong will to power and he's falling into a state of slavery. And so in order to um, save him, he needs to return, reignite that will to power. And that will actually fill him with creative energy once again and self-confidence. And it's sort of, it's like a pagan revival of Rome or something like this. We'll start to become all Martians again and we'll become big and strong and we'll build, the, the West will go on an ascendant path. And of course, the Christian frame takes this in a much different direction, although similar in many different ways. So Christianity is saying, listen, um, the reason why we're falling right now is a very fucking obvious one. We've all decided to become atheists in the last 150 years and look everything just started to fall apart like that's obvious and because we all decided to become atheists and follow sam harris and richard dawkins we've all decided to stick our girlfriends up on OnlyFans and uh and watch porn all the time and it's like we've lost our morality we've lost our alignment with the logos i guess you could say and then um, we've no we no longer acting and uh, adhering to a moral order and so if we all start to allow ourselves to align with the logos which would make us think logically that would also make us then we we have to act logically if we like align ourselves and, and confess our soul to christ and then this will lead to correct behaviors which would lead to the foundations of civilizational structures and then all of a sudden we'd be back on a decline again and we'd be in a new renaissance in no time the catholic church wins yippee here we fucking irish catholic by the way so i'm coming in that for um direction so uh, that might be the 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 core frame the core argument about what what's going on here because of course these two are at each other's throats they maybe agree on the foundational issue but then when it comes to deciding the solution the nietzscheans are turning around and saying hey 
um, if you go, if you if you become a Christian, if you become a moralist, you see this on Twitter all the time. If you become some type of stiff dork moralist, moralist tradcat, and all this, you're going to make us all weak and pathetic, and we won't be able to lift weights, and we'll we'll lose our vitality, and that's not going to be the way forward, and that's a terrible idea. And so you are actually our problem that we need to overcome, and we need to go and all oil ourselves up in coconut oil and go out and lift weights in the sun. And then the Christians are obviously turning around and being like, guys, you literally identify as perverts who, who like, you know, talk about skinning people alive and shit like this. Like you're, you're literally, you, you actually are degenerates, you know, you're crazy. The paganism thing is funny, but like Odin's a fucking meme. This is all, well, maybe that's too shallow of a rendition, but like, you know, the whole vitalism is like lifting weights is not a fucking, you know, it's not going to change, save the West and all this type of stuff. This is not the right perspective. Your problem is that you're not acting correctly because you've closed your heart off to the logos, to the truth. And for this reason, you're going to be lost blindly chasing after a German incel and never actually getting any progress and doing anything you need to do. And so this is where I think the, the heads um, the heads kind of clash an awful lot. Perhaps I'll leave it there because I think that's a, a coherent enough point. And of course, the metaphysics and all that stuff does come later. It's a very interesting one, but it, it might actually be better for that to come up naturally. Or uh, maybe we'll, we'll move on to it later when it becomes more relevant. So. Uh, yeah, thank you very much, and I hope that is uh, lays the, the table quite well. Definitely. I would definitely love to know from a classical theist whether the Logos could possibly also be reached by the people who are yearning for the uh, ideas of Nietzsche, or if that is a closed path. So, a classical theist, uh, let me know Yeah, what yeah. you think of Steph's um, uh, view. Well, I, I guess uh, the way you expressed those two camps strikes me as if you yourself don't necessarily fit fully and comfortably into either one of them because I mean, so I'm, I'm wondering kind of what your uh be before I kind of respond uh what where do you lie because it seems to me that when you were describing uh the so-called Nietzschean position you, you you were you had a little derisiveness in your tone for them so uh clarify that for me a little bit and then maybe I can kind of respond more effectively Sure. Okay. Um, so first of all, this is something that is like a uh, war inside my soul. I'm trying to figure out exactly where I should sit. I believe Nietzsche an awful lot more. I actually think I might be very, uh, a real, the most Nietzschean, oh, this is going to sound absurd, but like, I think I'm very Nietzschean in that I'm not, I don't buy into some type of systemic perspective or something like this. He's just, he's this horrible catalyst that forces you to think from very, very hard frames of reference. And so he just, puts together puts together arguments that are so difficult for me to dismiss that I, I basically have to listen to them. So I'll give you an example of one that's um, kind of tickling me quite uh, severely. The concept of logos, okay? Now, the Christian thesis is that logos is obviously the logic of God that was imprinted into the world when he created it. And this spirit is what came down to earth in Jerusalem all those years ago and showed us the path towards creating the good life and creating health and all this. And this was Christ. And of course, we murdered him because we were all decrepit, ugly, wretched monsters. And we tore him apart on the cross. And we, we you know, we, we basically, you know, fulfilled his destiny and saved us through doing this. And through this, we learned how to become logical. We learned how to become moral. We learned how to become righteous. Now, the Nietzschean challenge to this is that and this is such a, a crazy way of reframing the world. Like, I guess it kind of gets into the metaphysics is that life is not based on strict moral principles that we like to tell ourselves, like bedtime stories. You look out into the world and you look through history and you don't see this constant thing of the good guy winning. This is kind of simplistic, but I, 
I think you know what I mean. It's like political realism or Machiavelli or Thucydides. Um, an awful lot of the, the, the creativity that led to the rise of the Roman Empire was not a load of good boys organizing together and following along morality and logic. Instead, it was sort of like psychopathic, crazy schizophrenic bodybuilders who were obsessed with Martian energy, all organizing as a manor bund and saying that we're going to conquer this small part of Italy. And then that energy kept on spreading out and they eventually conquered larger, larger parts. And then even when Rome fell, the people who conquered Rome was these groups of vitalistic, energetic warrior German men running down from their forests, battering these Italians and telling them that like, you know, you're fucking short brown Italians, fuck you guys. And then like taking, taking control of their civilization from them. And so it's not like morality that seems like it was driving their success. It seems like it was something else. And this actually really was framed for me when I came across Nietzsche's, one of his favorite guys, which is Heraclitus, who was one of the sources of our conception of logos. And he pulls it away from Christianity. In fact, he doesn't. He established this before Christianity came along. And he says that logos, logos being the logical or the core fundamental first principle of the world. Logos is the ever-changing fire. Now, this is quite philosophically abstract for people, but maybe the best way we could understand this is that that's actually very close to Nietzsche's idea of the will to power. And it's also very close to Nietzsche's idea or sorry, the modern idea of energy. And so the yeah, I mean, that, as far as I know, he sees the world as the perpetual state of becoming and um that is yeah i see what you're saying there so so like if if you want to maybe we can get it in metaphysics a little bit then I, I guess nietzsche just reconstructs a bit of a pagan worldview and he says that we live in samsara it's it's sort of close to a, a part of the scientific worldview where we say we live in this giant cosmos this universe and it's this eternal flux of energy and it's just swirling around in samsara and this energy is always in conflict. This is another Heraclitus idea. It's like war is the father of all things. So the conflict between these forces is good. And the logos is the interaction and the movement of that energy and the, the evolution of that energy. And I guess the, the, the thesis that Nietzsche would present is that, that that interpretation of the world and therefore the logos is the correct one. And if you build your worldview on this and you try to cultivate uh, uh, more energy and more um, of that you know, will to power, I guess you could say, in yourself, it leads to strength and health, which actually leads to the good life and success and, you know, the platonic ideals, I guess, in a way. And it's saying that the Christian moralism is, is um, it castrates that, you know, that the Christian even view of logos is incorrect entirely, and it moves it in the wrong direction. So this is, <laughs> this is sort of what I'm trying to figure out at the moment. And that's uh, my best attempt to present it in, in down to earth language. Mm. Classical theist. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually really quite enjoyed that um, that presentation of it. Uh, I, th I think that, you know, I, I would say a few things. Um, I think it's it, it's good that I think we're going down to the level of the very root of where these ideas, I think, emerge and originate from. Um, I, I think what, what I would say first and foremost, though, is that the way I kind of approach this from the very beginning doesn't have really so much to do with what set what, what sets of ideas or, or what framework within which to see the world leads to say civilizational achievement. Um, that is, is, is a much more of a secondary uh, byproduct of what I would consider are, are much more fundamental and important principles that have to be worked out before we can even discuss 
what leads to the good life, what leads to civilizational achievement. I mean, to even measure what is a civilizational achievement versus what isn't a civilizational achievement sort of requires us to do it does require us to do metaphysics. It does require us to go back to first principles and sort of establish, okay, uh, what is the, what is the ontological basis for the possibility of civilizational achievement or civilizational good or or societal good or or or, or what have you? Um, <clears throat> I think that your, your your presentation of what logos means is pretty good. Um, I would say, however, that there's there's a bit more to it than that. I, th I think that um, in it's it, I don't think it should be read primarily through the lens of morality. I, I think I think morality is something that is more of the human participation in an order of being that is much broader than human morality. It's much broader than even humanity itself. Um, we would say, for example, that the human moral order is uh, sort of our rational participation in the eternal law of God, which moves in and through everything that exists. So, for example, the uh, the the uh, teleological impulse that leads to a tree achieving its full health achieving its 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 uh its its well-being as a tree that dynamic the the uh the, the dynamics the teleological dynamics that are in play there are really the same thing that are in play for human beings just uh at a higher order because we are also endowed with reason and will so we sort of have the ability to cooperate with the divine order of the cosmos to uh keep human nature itself in alignment with this with, with the same pattern of divine wisdom that's imbued in everything else so i, I don't think morality human morality is so much the impetus be, be, behind the christian doctrine of the logos human morality is more of a byproduct of uh metaphysical considerations that are in a certain sense uh independent of anthropomorphic or anthropocentric considerations. Uh, you know, there's this, we have this conception in the Thomistic tradition that uh, the world is related to God, but God is not really related to the world. Um, God has no real relationship to the world because he's undetermined by anything other than himself. He's undetermined by anything that's finite. And so, uh, when, when we get into these questions of what is the logos, uh, we're really asking questions that are thoroughly unrelated to human morality in itself, but nevertheless do as a byproduct have very strong and grave implications for human morality. Um, whether human morality or whether the Christian conception of the logos vis-a-vis -vis human morality leads to a sort of, uh, shall we say, uh, retreat from this the kind of uh crucible that that leads to greatness perhaps we could say um i would sort of leave that leave that to an extent as an open question i mean uh, i think 
in certain cases in history, sure. I mean, the restraints that are put upon human beings by Christian morality does prevent you from engaging in certain activities that might end up leading to uh, various heights of human achievement. I can concede that. On the other hand, um, he, uh, Christian morality and, and, and Christian virtue uh, can also serve as as a, a a catalyst for human achievement. I mean, uh, if if we have a, a vision of the world that uh, views something like aesthetic accomplishment, human achievement, uh, doing well for your own body, doing well for your family, uh, these various uh, th these various human achievements that I think are someone like Nietzsche would would hold up as laudable. Uh, if the impetus behind seeking out these things is contextualized within a, a, a broader eschatological vision of the world, um, that has tremendous influence to to inspire those great works and to bring about the kind of restraint of the passions that are necessary to uh, to, to to cultivate the uh, focus necessary to bring about those human achievements. I think without a uh, without this this moderating influence of a Christian perspective of what is virtuous and what is vicious, uh, how one uh, how one exercises the will to power, there, there, there's really no uh, common consensus of where that should, what, what direction that should even lead one to. I mean, uh, it's so it, it seems to me without this metaphysical conception of the logos that can undergird uh, our understanding of vice and virtue, I, I don't see how, like, sure, the will to power could. The will to power in humanity could lead to great civilizational heights like we see in ancient Greece, Greece and Rome. It could equally lead to, uh, I, I would say, uh, human activities that I think you and I would agree are, are, are quite uh, uh, morally degenerate. I, I mean, uh, what's to say that what we see in, say, transgenderism, how, how, how can we absolutely rule that out as a uh, as, as a an, an expression of the will to power if the will to power is not ultimately rooted in our uh, rational or spiritual or intellectual grasp of the real and true order of things that are imbued in the cosmos from a transcendent source so I mean I guess I'm rambling a little bit but I, th I guess that's sort of how I would at least begin to frame my disagreement before Uberboyer responds there's something I need to ask which is, you said, Uberboyo, before that there was this uh, very almost Dionysian type of energy that a lot of these early Christians had. 
And when I look at that, it does not look to me like the kind of Christians where it's like very philosophical and, you know, very thoughtful and looking towards various uh, ideas that came before, whether we're talking about uh, Platonism and so on and so forth. Would you guys say, and I want to get Neil on this as well, would you guys say that the early Christians, the ones that were responsible for actually creating the Catholic Church, were they bookworms or were they these in a frenzy type of state people who are well, uh, like a regular Roman would look at and say, oh, my God, these are like the SJWs of today. I don't know if that is an apt comparison or not. Early Christians? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, could we... Could we could we shelf that a little bit later? Because that's a sure. great conversation. But sure. We'll, we'll go. We'll go deep into it. I'll write it down that here. Is, that, is, to... that would be a derailment. You're right, Boyo. That would be a derailment of the conversation. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no. Like Neil would be fantastic in that because he's he's got a great historical depth of the early Christians. But it's like um, it's a big conversation because like it's a very interesting one. I'd love to hear Mr. Class. If I, if I can add to the logos just real quick, if you don't mind. Sure. 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 Because because you made a good point with Heraclitus and his definition. And this word sort of becomes this like center of philosophy, center of debate for even in right, even up until right now. Like here we are discussing what even logos is, and it, by the time it gets to Plato, Plato seems to apply the logos to the world in a sense where you start getting people say that the mind of Zeus is the logos, and that the uh, the demiurgic uh, power of creation is the logos like that is it and so mercury or hermes gets called the logos because he's the messenger he's the one he's the word of zeus in a way and by the time we get to philo of alexandria he's he likes this concept this 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 new plato's idea of what the logos is and he instead it's instead of and he even writes about mercury being the logos in, in his works actually but he takes that and applies it to judaism and says that the logos is the son of god who will inherit the kingdom of heaven and will judge, you know, judge uh, and bring the kingdom. And uh, and so now you have this Christian. Now Philo is the one who gives us the Christian logos, basically. Christians are looking back to Philo. And when, when John's writing John 1, he's taking Philo's definition of this logos character, who is the embodiment of truth and wisdom and life. And so by the time we get to Nietzsche, I think Nietzsche is doesn't like this idea and because the idea that the we can apply logo apply logos to the world is rather than um well he would say and this is you know i could be you could we could debate this a little bit but i think Nietzsche would say that we can't just reduce man to you know uh logical abstraction because we have a will and that will sometimes conflicts with rationality itself and so Nietzsche, like myself, actually, was going back to the world of the ancient Greeks and looking back before Christianity and trying to trying to look for certain things in which he puts together this concept of the Ubermensch, where the, the, the whoever's on the people on top are going to drive the, the force of, of, of society. They're the ones that are going to make the, all the changes. And so. With that being said, uh, I think he didn't like. I, I think his opposition to Christianity in that sense was that it is sort of a uh, preacher of equality mentality, and uh, he even writes about. I forgot which. I forgot which book it is, but I, I could find it if you guys really want me to. 
He even says when he's talking about the Soviet, he's talking, who's talking about Soviet? He's talking about communism somewhere. And he's saying that this is not new at all. He said, this is coming from the monasteries, the, the, the church uh, communities across the Roman Empire lived like this. This is nothing new. This is from the Christians. Communism is a Christian thing. And so if you want to, you guys can uh, challenge me on that. I can demonstrate that he said that. I can find it somewhere. But it's, uh, it, was, it, was, it was anarchism. He, okay. he talks about it. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Because yeah. Yeah, the communists weren't really uh, like around. But it was like the, he was talking about essentially who would become the communists. You know, right, like he was right. talking about those people. Um, there, there's a lot you said there. So I want to try to grab all of this stuff and keep it as, as focused as possible because it's going to be, we'll be going in all sorts of different directions. So, um, Neil, I get to yours after I get to Mr. Classical Theists. The, theists. Um, loads of things I'd actually love to hear more about what you mean by these, Mr. Mr. Theist. The teleological impulse inside of a tree. So the tree has a is when you when you're describing that, are you saying that the tree has a, a will and it's trying to you know form into its the the apex the uber tree I guess in some sense, and are you saying that the will that drives that tree into its form is the will of God, or are you suggesting that there's a, we'll say a plastic force living inside this universe which is energy as we've described which is in the universe. And God is outside the universe and he actually takes that plastic force and he gives it order. And so if we took out God out of the universe, we just get this like absolutely schizophrenic big blob of energy flying around like a baby playing with Play-Doh. And all the trees would turn out like spaghetti. It would just be the stupidest place to ever live. Because without God coming in with the logos in order to, to shape the energy into its form, it actually is it's, it's mindless. It's soulless. It's, 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 it has no order of some sort. And so we have a... We have a you have like infinite, infinite lizards bouncing off each other and turning into silly putty and stretching out. Yeah, a hundred percent. So this is what we, we need God to to put some discipline on this this show. And um, so is is the crafting force of God that is that is a a, a the the most important active force in the world that we need to focus on. And Nietzsche then, or we could say even the pagan perspective, is deifying energy and saying that there's an inherent intelligence imminent within energy that leads to the tree turning into the fucking tree. And that's that's in energy. That's an imminent force inside of this world. And then the Christian thesis is that that force is in the world, but the actual ordering force is outside of the world. And we need to align our minds with that or we'll turn into... I don't know, the members of the cast of the Joker or something like this. <laughs> yeah, I, I would mediate between everything what, of, of what you said. Um, what I'm kind of getting at is, so within sort of our metaphysical conception of the world, we have this uh, this this teleological impulse that I'm referring to, we would say comes from uh, the act of existence. Uh, the, the act of existence uh which would be the mode of participation in the divine existence, who is nothing but existence itself. God is the pure act of existence itself, in it through whom everything else exists by way of participation. And uh, and and so the tree, for example, that that teleological impulse to be what it is, stems from uh, the act of existence that it receives from God who uh who is able to by way of 
subtraction, so to speak, uh, limit it down to a specific mode of participation in him, which is what we would call the form of the thing. The form of the thing is that limited mode participation in the divine existence that uh, the tree in its actual existence can thereby participate in uh, through its activity in the world. And its activity in the world uh, is more or less perfect to the degree that it, uh, that, that, that it conforms to that uh, formal imprint that is uh, given to it by God. Um, and it's that general pattern of being, it's that general pattern of existence that permeates all things and human being and human nature is sort of just one participation in that grand uh, uh, divinely ordained cosmic pattern that I'm kind of referring to. And um, if I could say something ab ab about uh, that as it relates to Christianity, uh, And, and that is that I, I would argue that in reality, the Christian vision of the cosmos is, one could almost say, the most ubermension. Because it, uh, it, it, its central claim is that uh, God, who you know, already exists from all eternity as a trinity of divine persons. And he, uh, purely out of the will to manifest and share his, his own inner divine glory, uh, creates the cosmos, uh, which is, which is meant to be a, 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 uh, a participation in his own life, again, for the purpose of manifesting and sharing the divine glory for its own sake. Um, the cosmos ends up, because God creates the cosmos and imbues in the cosmos uh, its own proper and authentic mode of being, the cosmos is sort of created with this, with this uh, dynamic capacity to uh, act in accordance with this, uh, with, with, with this logos, we could say, through whom all things are made, or to act against it. Uh, or to act in ways that are counter to what we would say would be the uh, the the true order of perfection that is imbued within creation. Creation itself has the capacity to uh, stand athwart that. Um, and, and we would say this began with the fall of the angels. The, the angels are 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 the first uh, are, are sort of the first fruits of this divine impulse to manifest and share his glory outside of himself. Uh, but the angels aren't the be-all and end-all. God also wills for the entire created order, the entire cosmos, to uh, also share in his inner uh, in His inner divine perfection and in his inner divine glory. And this is achieved principally through the creation of man. Man is, we would call the minor mundi, the, the, the microcosm of all creation he contains within himself, every element of the great chain of being, right? Uh, the, the, he shares with all of the non-inanimate matter, uh, the basic uh, chemical compounds, basic chemical compositions that are, that are shared with inanimate uh, matter. Uh, he also shares with, with vegetative 
uh, life and and animal life, uh, those elements that are proper to those uh, grades of the hierarchy of being. And he also shares with the angel that direct participation in, in, in the life of the spirit, of, of intellect and will. And so man sums up the entire cosmos, right? Uh, th this this Qu Quite literally, to... too, by the way. I just want to add quite literally, too, if we're talking about the shape of the human body, where you would start out with, like, the reproductive organs being all the way in the bottom, and then going to the heart that balances everything out, and then the head, kind of like the... Uh, antenna you know like the bulb of the antenna that's in connection with the cosmos so even in the way that the human body is made you can see examples of various esoteric uh, um uh, yes. designs like the kabbalah for instance or the yes, seven uh, chakras and so forth yeah there is a connection there but anyway go on so yeah so uh the human being in his own essential constitution is sort of that way in which the lowest grades the lowest uh could even say the dirtiest grades of creation uh, are able to be overcome, so to speak, and brought into alignment with glory, and that's that's the initial vision for the human being. Of course, but the human being has that, likewise, that that inner impulse, that 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 in, the inner capacity to stand athwart that divine plan, and he did, we would say, and and in this that's obviously the story of Adam and Eve. What Christ does. What Christ does is he, uh, by becoming man himself, by achieving this absolute total union between divinity and the rest of the cosmos summed up in humanity, what he does is he uh, dives right down into the uh, – he, he dives right into this – to the chaos that emerges from uh, disobeying the Logos and – in diving into it, he overcomes it. He 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 conquers uh, the enemies of humanity, which is summed up in the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is actually the true source that that takes that that brings humanity down to slavery. I would argue it's the world, the flesh, and the devil that uh, captivate our true and proper will to power, which should be sourced in. Uh, the divine pattern that because it's, it's only in aligning our will to power with the divine order that 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 he put in in creation that we can actually tap into uh, infinite glory because if the will to power is turned inwardly on oneself then, then there's there's uh, that that has nowhere really to go ultimately it's it's it's, it's going to end in 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 and death because it likewise is finite it's 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 not going to it, it, it might lead to some temporal achievement civilizational achievement sh to be sure but if it's not linked to an infinite wellspring of glory then i don't really see a point to it so to that extent i would argue that that christianity in the christ figure in this uh incarnational metaphysics and in Christ's descent into chaos and conquering our true enemies, uh, which culminates in his resurrection and 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 glorified uh, status, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Um, this enables us to uh, to to transcend 
I would argue, the forces that really keep us down, the forces that truly enslave us. Uh, and I understand that Nietzsche, one of his critiques of Christian morality that he calls sla uh, slave morality is that it's, it's teaching on, say, uh, universal charity or something. Is it, it plays into the lower rungs of society, and therefore it's it, it's it's going to uh, take the Ubermensch down a level and force him to play by the rules of of the inferiors, right? Um, and and by that reason, it's kind of has this slave morality uh, attack uh, stigma to it. What I would say though is, uh, in obeying virtue and an avoiding vice what we really do is 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 we keep the lowest lowest of the low within man himself at bay and a a, a non-christian ethic uh or an ethic that springs out of sort of a nihilistic approach to the objectivity of ethics what that would lead to like that's sort of what the lowest of the low within man, quote unquote, wants to hear. I, I would say, because uh, the lowest of the low within man would be our our uh, our ignoble passions, our uh, our um, you know tendency to uh, just engorge ourselves with pleasure, which leads to self destruction. These forces within us. Uh, they kind of bring down the uh, I, I would argue I would say like the the the, the uber mentioned dynamic of the soul's triumph over the body. It, it brings that down to the level of the ignoble passions from I could say like the bottom of the barrel of humanity, and that's the real slave morality. So I mean I've rambled too much. I think I apologize if my thoughts aren't very well structured or. Or something. I'm kind no, of, no, it's, it's great. Content creation stuff. And now Uber Boyo, slave morality. Uh, what you got? <laughs> I'm gonna again. I'm gonna shelf that for maybe a little bit later because um, <laughs> you've you've brought us some very interesting things. So this is a this is pretty base take on Christianity. You know, this is uh, this is what we're talking. This is I could get we can get the bodybuilders behind this. All right, I'm sure. Um, this reminds me. I, you probably are talking about Pavato Boni, which is the idea that there's there's no there's no real there's no real evil in some sense or there's not some substance to yeah. the devil but in fact all that really exists is is god and so the way i'm trying to imagine this in my head is i imagine like you know there's just this empty solar system with like not very much going on and then at the center of it you have this ever powerful sun that's exploding out all the energy and that creates all the planets and that creates all the heat which creates all the life so it's kind of a question that if you're like you know you're living on earth and imagine like all right metaphorically imagine god's the sun and it's sort of like if you want if you want energy go to the which sun. by the way a lot of church fathers they love that analogy for the divine of, of, of the sun a lot of the eastern fathers so i, I like and, that and that makes sense and it's, it's how i actually like can see this in my head what you're describing because the sun is this, this central force and it's it's basically like like there is like what is it? empty space it's just darkness there's nothing there um and then there's an interesting frame inside of this as well which is this is even like actually like scientifically studied where energy in physiological systems the most most structured systems 
produce the most energy. So for example, within the, the context of your body, do you know where you'll actually find this explained surprisingly well is in Bronze Age mindset at the start of it. He talks about this and it's like really, really actually like really well articulated. I was, I was astounded to find it there. But within your body, you have a variety of different systems. This comes from a guy called Ray Pete and you have this thing called a thyroid, for example. This is something that generates your metabolism. And so the thyroid is an extremely highly structured uh, hormone and structured system that allows you to extend energy out over long periods of time. So the high energy state within the body is structure and the low energy state is actually formlessness. And you just lose energy the more, you know, flabby you get. Think about like even being fat, you know, when you're lowering in metabolism and you're starting to get fat, you're losing form. But when you get skinny and shredded and juicy, obviously, you have more form. That's very interesting. That, that, that type of relationships happens. Ugliness is related to formlessness. We turn into blobs when we move away from God, as we, if we express it type of way. So, purring around inside go. the sun that, that creates everything uh, connected together. Am I all good? You're all good. No worries. Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sweet. Sweet. So it, 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 all, it creates all like the the interaction of form creates the the explosion of energy that's the sun, which leaves derivatively to all the life that's around it. So that's that's I, I absolutely get that, and I think it's a very powerful way of, of looking at everything. And um, I could say one more then, thing about that before you go on. Uh, but if if not, by all means, just continue, and I'll talk after. No, go on, go on, go on, because I'll you know like tangents are going to come up all over the fucking place. So uh, okay, go. I I appreciate that. Um. I think that's a really important analogy because it seems to me Nietzsche, his conception is that the very idea of God is stands in direct opposition to human proper human achievement or to the uh, uh, cultivation of, 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 of the ubermatch, the very idea of God, the very idea of some transcendent source of all things, the very idea of God. Um, but if, he says yeah, this, yeah, go ahead. He says that because he decided that between the between the, the centuries-long debate between Epicurus and Plato, that if there is either forms, heaven and hell, or everything's atoms and void, which means this reality, that this universe that we're in right now is it. And Nietzsche agreed with Epicurus and said, this is it. We have to find our greatness here. We're not just going to wait for some God to bring us in another realm and live in heaven, hoping that it's going to happen. Do it now. Let's get great right here, right now. And I think that's, I think he's right. I mean, that's the one, that's one of the big things of Nietzsche that I really agree on. I don't agree on a lot of the stuff Nietzsche says, but that I do agree on. This is it. Like, we're not, we're just, like you, I, you, you talk about in, your, in classical theology, you said, you know, yeah, without, without, without like even the lowly can get redeemed and stuff. Well, that's fine and dandy, but like, what about, what about greatness? What about, driving everything forward what's what's going to be the the power driving the force of society to the next level if we're just going to sit down and just say ah we're going to wait till heaven heaven no. is going to be good uh, in, in well, fairness well, uh, sorry mr theus let, let me cut in for yeah second. yeah go ahead. go ahead trying trying to steal man because i actually know what neil's talking about and this is a really interesting critique that i'm kind of trying to build up to because this is nietzsche basically saying the otherworldliness as opposed to the imminence leads to this really serious problem. So we'll, I think we'll get to that. But as far as I understand what Mr. Theist is saying, <laughs> Mr. Theist, I'm going to run with that. Um, That's fine. You actually get power and energy from following God's 
structure logos. And I'm trying to describe this idea that this this is actually really well presented in um, biological systems. You, For example, the, the thyroid structures your body to make you look beautiful. You get more energetic and life and full of life and healthy and, and more sexy. You become platonic by having a structured body. Whereas if you become, if you move away from God and eat the fucking burgers, you become formless. You turn into, <laughs> you know, if you turn into a tub. And that's actually, that's like literal, a biological example of this metaphorical description, which should always pull your brakes. Another example is um, in music. When you take two um, two harmonic sequences, so when you take an interval of uh, a major fifth, for example, the mathematical perfection of these two wavelengths forming together yeah. creates a harmonic sound. Now, what's crazy is that these sounds are more energetic, hence they sound more beautiful. They align mathematically, so they generate more energy, hence they sound nice to us. When you take, for example, a, a, a seventh note or a note that's very dissonant, which has a really bad mathematical fraction, it, it dissipates the energy. It's like washing in a, 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 a lake or something like this and, and ruining the, the flow of energy. It, it just kind of chucks up the energy and it sounds distorted as a consequence and it sounds ugly. Again, another example of this precise principle manifesting here. And so I think what Mr. Theus is basically saying is that if you want greatness, if you want energy in, in this world, you have to um, understand that inside this world, in this world, is some sort of logical principled force uh, force is not the right word it's set of ideas it's actually a very scientific way of thinking this is why i think christianity led to science as nietzsche said that mm -hmm. if you actually get close to this or you obey this it will give for you energy which will also give for you beauty which will also give for you i guess you could say good all of these are related together and out of the world comes success out of the world comes greatness out of the world comes all of these things and i, I think that's a very important frame the best like the best frame christianity can present i'd like to uh I, I love what you said and i'd like to talk very briefly about two things related to what was said one, one about um the the, the otherworldliness of christianity and the relationship between transcendence and imminence in christianity um with respect to like focusing purely on the otherworldly and therefore we neglect the world as it is now First thing I, I just want to kind of preface is to say, just look at what are the Christian virtues. Like, let's talk about that for a second. Uh, we have, of course, in, in the Catholic system, we have the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Um, and those have to do with our how we receive the life of grace, uh, the life of sanctifying grace, and, and that, that which pertain directly, primarily, and principally to our relationship with God, our, our quest for union with God himself. But that's not... That doesn't exhaust the Christian virtues. It's not just faith, hope, and charity. It's also it's also the cardinal virtues, which are what? They're fortitude, temperance, prudence, uh, etc. You can kind of go on and on. Talk about the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but but focus on like fortitude and temperance and prudence for a second. Uh, these, and and of course there's justice as well. Uh, these pertain directly and specifically to our life on earth and uh the, the the more we cultivate the virtues of 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 prudence of temperance and fortitude the more we bring ourselves in alignment with god the more we, we bring ourselves in alignment with with the life of sanctifying grace in the soul and it's the cultivation yeah go ahead you think that christianity are the only is the only uh you know worldview or religion that brings those 
principles, those spiritual principles into the fold? No, no, I, I, I would not say that. Okay, because I mean, we're talking back in the ancient world. Empedocles said that justice should be deified and worshipped. And no, I mean, I, 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 like these, these are by no means unique to Christian revelation, uh, but they're contextualized within a system that is unique. So, um, it's it's in the uh, it's in the practicing of these virtues, uh, which stem from faith, hope, and charity in the soul which enable us to contextualize all these virtues uh, to be elevated to a state of existence that goes beyond the beyond our nature, um, which doesn't just enable us to live in alignment with God, but enables us to participate in the very inner life of the Trinity itself. And, and uh, to the extent that we uh, not only follow these virtues, but also... Uh, but but also uh, live the life of grace itself. Um, that is how we attain union with God. And the thing about Christianity is that it, yes, it does place of primary importance uh, the eschaton, right? The end of all things, uh, eschatological truths about uh, the, the world to come. That is true, but ironically, I would argue that in placing our ultimate summum bonum in an eschatological turn of events that we don't really have any direct control over, it, it kind of forces us not to uh, not to uh, to to bring the uh, shall we say, like egalitarian vision for humanity, it, it forces us not to bring that down to the level of life on earth. And so it, it, it's actually the, the supernatural dimension of Christianity that uh, sort of forces us to focus not so much on ensuring absolute total equality on earth, but in uh, ordering and structuring society in such a way that uh, – that the, the inequalities that Christianity acknowledges exist in within society, but ordering them in such a way that can uh, maximize uh, uh, virtue and diminish vice according to the proper ordering of each member of society. So it, it, it embraces the inequality of humanity, actually, it, it, because it's able to contextualize inequality within a principle of equality that is supernaturally grounded. Um, so for example, uh, a Christian view of things wouldn't necessitate that the poor uh, be, um, that, that, that service to the poor come at the expense of uh, great societal achievements of the aristocracy. Pope Leo XIII in his encyclical Rerum Novarum talks about how uh, when, uh, when, when this uh, notion of the, of the universal logos is, is properly applied to human society, it will bring out the best in each class. And, and it will not lead to class warfare because, uh, for one, you know, Christianity would say that uh, 
the highest member of society, um, or, or rather I should say, uh, while it is true that like the highest members of society and the aristocracy are supposed to, you know, they're, they're supposed to uh, be generous with with what they have and with what they've achieved, and because that, that leads to their own self-fulfillment and their own perfection. Uh, nevertheless, the poor are also admonished likewise not to uh, resent the rich, not to resent the aristocracy, uh, because they can suffer from the very same vice that uh, the, the avaricious man suffers from. The poor can be more avaricious than the richest man in the world. Uh, and this is what Christ talks about, about being poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit means that we have a healthy detachment from material things. But the poor and, 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 and the lowest rungs of society, they can be just as guilty of avarice as, as, as the very poor and the very rich. And so the vision of Christianity is to contextualize these inequalities that exist, to respect them, to actually embrace them, but to contextualize them within this broader vision of the common good so that each member of society uh, in uh, fully participating in society to the extent that he can, uh, to the extent that he's fully, uh, or to the extent that he's properly fulfilling his sort of given role, and that role is given either by nature or or, or given by uh, society itself, uh, that in itself uh, brings about this this, this greater uh, transcendent spiritual principle of equality. So, so equal, this spiritual notion of equality can be accomplished in and through the inequalities of human society. So I, I would say that Christianity is actually a built-in mechanism to resist uh, these negative externalities of, of say mass democracy or uh, socialism or communism while i do recognize that those uh what those do is i think they take that spiritual uh equality that that we can kind of uh, strive for which is really just universal charity universal love of all willing to all what is their true good um, it takes that but it secularizes it and in secularizing it it leads to uh those systems, but it need not be secularized, and that's the point. And when it's not secularized, I would say it's actually its biggest. And Christianity is is the biggest enemy to those systems of thought. The uh, the uh, gears are turning in Uber Boy's head. I also don't want to forget to also mention Christianity being a kind of control system when it isn't secularizing those things. But we'll get to that as well. But Uber Boy, go for it. Well, I think uh, so. This is good because we've been digging this down, and I like I don't want to go into this and straw man and talk silly, like you know, uh, Christianity's slave and all this type of stuff, and Nietzsche's an incel and all this. What I actually see now is a very firm challenge from what I understand is the Nietzschean perspective. Now, this might be best framed as Nietzsche's idea that we because Nietzsche does not want resentment he does not want you to sit down and be bitter and and stomp your feet all the time and blame Christianity for tying your shoelaces together or whatever it is he wants you to embrace a firm and then move forward like he's very I guess you could say progressive in his attitude and what you're describing with the Christian perspective which is very mature it's a very like it's obviously true it's obviously right that there's some type of mysterious logos pregnant within the world 
and fuck fuck knows how it got there you know like it just it looks like some form of form of intelligent design and every scientist and every artist is interacting with that and we in the west call that god the muslims call that allah and um, scientists and artists sometimes even come up with private relationships with it but it doesn't matter because it's there and christianity cr claims monopoly in that and of course they're entitled to because every every religion does um, and just because every religion does is not a, a an invalidation of christianity at all that's not how that works but nonetheless there's an interesting question implicit inside of that where as western man was disciplined to focus on that logos and ask that really mystical question as we all got together in our monasteries we stopped running around like barbarians swinging our axes and we got together in monasteries and we sat down and we focused on the logos and we tried to penetrate into reality this is this is Nietzsche's such an astounding um, way that Nietzsche thought because he saw this happening that we began to evolve as Western people, we all sat down and we're penetrating and we're trying to understand rocks and writing and mathematics and stones and trees. We're tr looking for these teleological impulses and we're trying to understand how um, this platonic order imprinted within the world produces this state of grace when you align with it how does the musician go into that state of grace when they're playing the beautiful song they're playing through these mathematical principles but they're creating something that's ordered energetic and beautiful this is amazing and they they do this for a long enough period of time that nietzsche says that we ask questions about that logo so much that we begin to actually start to ask really fucking serious questions about it such as wait a second is that logos actually anchored in some supernatural world now why do i say this because i think this is where the rubber hits the road neil brought it up earlier and i think what happens in the 18 17 18 and 19th century is we start to realize that the logos is some type of set of principles not rules but set of principles that exist within the world just like a musician understands that there's laws of harmony now the way you interact with the laws of harmony is that the laws of harmony is somewhat neutral to you there is no um morality really with the laws of, of harmony but instead you as a musician have to obey them and if you obey them correctly you produce beauty because this is the christian thesis of how how you produce beauty and then if you play the piano but you can do it with your own style and you can bend the rules and all this and you can actually express yourself in relationship to the rules but you cannot violate the rules because you'll make something ugly you have to align with the principles but then also there's this sort of like give and take and this evolves very quickly into the western attitude towards science we start to look at the world as having logical principles inside of it a logos and we start to wonder ourselves as these tactile master manipulators of this world we start to play with these rules a bit we become creators we become manifestors and this starts to become a very big problem because this scientific attitude produces a very, very profound and penetrative understanding of the world that effectively starts to make us say this logos, the, the whole idea that this logos is anchored, the way I relate to this logos is through some type of other vessel, which we would call Christ, which we would call the, the, the super, some supernatural force is not the direct way that I go to it. Uh, maybe I'm not articulating myself properly, but if I'm a scientist, my understanding is it's me going out directly to the logos of the world and communicating with it. And I don't need God. I don't need prayers. I don't need a fucking priest. I don't need a church. I don't need any of that stuff. I can go out and I can penetrate into the platonic logos and find it and create something amazing as a consequence. And me having to go through this whole loop of conceptual thought to a supernatural world because Christ brought it down and he's the only way towards this truth seems like a... Uh, 
an incorrect deviation, a creation of another world that doesn't make sense at all. It seems like it's just wholly unnecessary in order to achieve the state of grace with um, which what science science can do directly. And so I basically guess the thesis is, is that you can reach the, the, the divine in a sort of secular way. No, and you don't need the supernatural deviant point through Christianity and all these things as a consequence. And we were sort of educated by Christianity to think that way. And weirdly, then we subverted it in and of itself. Now, I've said a hell of a lot of stuff there. I'm not sure if you're even following, but please, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, no, I actually... so. What I would argue, though, is that what what that that seems to maybe to an extent oversimplify the progression of Western thought vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the role of empirical science um, as sort of an outgrowth of that impulse to deepen our uh, engagement with the logos as imprinted in created things. Um, but I would argue is actually that. Um, in a certain way, the uh, turning away from the more, I guess we could say, philosophical or metaphysical dimensions of of intellectual inquiry to the purely uh, physical uh, laws of nature and uh, our ability to manipulate those for some technological uh, achievement or or whatever that is in itself not so much a progression but a degradation um it's 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 turning it you know because i would say that the, the logos are maybe we could say the um yeah i mean we could still we'll still use this word but like the vestiges of the logos that are imprinted in creative things it exists through a hierarchy of order you know, there's the metaphysical principles that underlie or, or, or that undergird created things such as act and potency and form and matter and uh, the role of the act of existence um, uh, and, and even, even goodness itself, goodness and perfection. These, I would say, are, are they, they are still today uh, rationally accessible uh, truths about the, the, the metaphysical constitution of reality. Um, and that so so you you can uh those principles though i would say are at a higher level than uh the circumstantial ways in which natural things physical substances uh tend to behave or or, or how they tend to be uh physically constituted um either uh, uh chemically or subatomically or biologically, what have you. These are, I would argue, are the sort of the, the, the lower rungs of the ladder of human intellectual inquiry. Now, they do, of course, they show results in ways that are, I, I guess you could say, um, more like unquestionable than, say, the debates having to do with, I don't know, uh, like hylomorphic dualism or Cartesian dualism, you know, these, these more metaphysical debates, clearly, uh, we, we can see that the stove works. We can see that, that, that the rocket actually can reach the moon, etc. Uh, but I mean, part of that is because, uh, we have, uh, as, as embodied beings, we have a greater proximity to these, uh, these lower rungs of intellectual, 
inquiry, we can have a more direct engagement with physical substances as they act towards us, right? Um, it, 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 it's, it, it takes, it, you have to enter through stages of negation and, and, and removal uh, in order to reach these, these, these higher levels of more metaphysical and philosophical inquiry. So what I would say is that um, I, I don't think that this progression from like metaphysics to science constitutes some kind of proof that we've sh we've shaved off the need for uh, locating the, the the logos in a uh, transcendent source of all things. It, it, it's it's more having to do with just the historical progression of our shift of focus in our intellectual inquiry. The more we focus on physical substances and how they be, react and what they're made out of, of course, we're going to lead to all kinds of technological advancements that come from that field of inquiry. But but just because we've shifted our focus to that field of inquiry doesn't mean that we have thereby uh, 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 refuted or, or, or undermined uh, the, the necessity to ultimately root uh, those vestiges of the logos in the transcendent source of all things. That's a question that is adjudicated through metaphysics. That's a question that's adjudicated through, you know, the classical arguments for God's existence. Uh, the, like St. Thomas's argument for God's existence from the distinction between essence and existence. Those are questions that aren't going to be adjudicated by a shift of focus to, to these more uh, empirical questions. Uh, we can shift our focus to that, sure, and, and we can produce wonderful uh, technological advancements, but that, 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 that's not going to leave, that, that will still leave those other questions unanswered unless they're adjudicated within that realm of intellectual inquiry, which is something I don't think Nietzsche really does. <laughs> I don't think he really, because like, Nietzsche doesn't really give a like philosophical refutation of St. Thomas's argument from contingency, you know? Um, he, maybe he does. I, I've not read it, but, but you kind of um, see what I'm saying. Yeah, hundred percent. So I, I actually like really like what you're saying. I think it's very, it's it's really well put together. And I think the you're very heavily leaning on the concept of grace, which I don't think is a bad thing at all. So I'm going to try to explain it in my own words. It's like um, a metaphysical principle tends to be an awful lot more uh, abstract, I guess you could say. And then a mechanical principle is uh, Newtonian's law of thermodynamics. And you're, accu you're like you're accusing and saying here, don't worship fucking Newton's law of gravity and think that you found God when God's principles might be far more profound than that. So, for example, Newton will tell you that an apple falls off a tree, but maybe a higher metaphysical principle is the principle of symmetry or something like this. And these are much more sophisticated principles. And the yeah, way or, I or, it, or uh, to, to just modify that a little bit, like Newton will tell you how the apple falls off the tree. Metaphysics will tell you what is motion, what is change. So then yeah. a, another analogy I use in my head is with the going back to that music analogy, there's a logos imprinted in music. Now, what's interesting is that at different stages of your musical career, you actually relate to the musical experience in different ways. You begin by trying to follow the patterns and the numbers, and it's very mechanical. The, the, your interaction with the law and you you could even you could even look at music and look at it in this very autistic spurgy i've got to get all the harmonics together but that actually doesn't produce good music it can produce sort of nice music that's technically yeah. clean but it doesn't produce actual you could call it graceful music whereas if you listen to a true a talented composer they're hitting all of the mechanical laws of harmony 
but they're also doing it with like um, abstract, you could call them metaphysical things, feel, uh, emotion, passion, um, some, some other intangibles that are really, really mystical hard. intuition. Uh, intuition they're they're getting they're following some type of symmet symmetrical feel to it as well they got rhythm they've got all these other things that the orphics the orphics were big into this kind of kind of thing 100 and so this allows them to get a, a more sophisticated interaction so i guess your accusation is that if the nietzscheans like if I, we're going to sit around and we're going to be start smashing our hammer off the table and being like we found the scientific principles get the fucking rid of the churches we're done burn the monasteries it's it's over we figured out we don't need them anymore you're sort of like listen dudes you've you've you're literally actually have started to just focus at the start, once again, and you're. And from what I understand, Nietzsche is also an anti-realist when it comes to science. <laughs> I mean, like he, from what from what I understand, he doesn't even see scientific paradigms as really getting to the root of reality in the first place. So I mean, there's there's that disjointed element to his thinking as well. At least it seems to me. Again, not a Nietzsche scholar, so you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. You know, and it's not necessarily like I'm representing him perfectly either. You know, so this is me in some sense using him as a guide to try help me interpret what, what's going on. But um, that's an interesting frame. Like, it's a really powerful frame. I really, really like that. It's a strong frame. It's a strong approach and a strong... Now, I think this is where the, another challenge comes in that is starting to, again, go to one of his very serious accusations where um, you, you, you tend to have this frame of... Uh, it's a slight cynicism and pessimism towards all progressive modernizing in impulses within western man now i know that we're in a state of like you know we're in a terrible botched situation at the moment and we're through this like going through this artistic crisis and all this but i don't think that that's necessarily been the entire story of modernity i think we've achieved an awful lot of aesthetic beauty and success in many different ways and i'd even say things like metaphysical grace have shown up in very secular ways through much of our works like the artistic period of modernism and all this and there's a lot of things we can get into like even film could be described as an extremely high art yeah, and yeah. a great achievement now of course oh, for sure my, my, my criteria for judging all this is, is sort of a civilizational achievement perspective. And I've noticed that this is um, something that you, a judgment criteria that you don't want to have. Now, this is where it gets into this. It's almost like the cart before the horse, morality before the result. And Nietzsche, I guess, is pushing us to sort of say, well, listen, the Christians are turning around and telling us, you have to go back to the metaphysical principles. You have to anchor your thinking in this. You have to start from there. And this leads to this constant shooting your own foot, it feels. It, it, it stops us being able to engage with modernity and just kind of go chase after it and, and embrace it and go and explore these principles and go into interact with this logos and go and build something. This is his accusation of nihilism, as, as we'd understand it. And um, I, I've noticed this a little bit, like you, you, you're, you're pessimistic towards civilizational achievement. And I would see that as a, a pretty good judgment criteria. You know, I don't think many people would even be asking these questions as much as they are nowadays if civilization was not achieving things right now. And so what like what is the situation there? And I'd love then to go into Dionysus and all this type of stuff, because Neil has loads of stuff he'd like Christians to share. Christians as uh, SJWs. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll maybe get into that. But I guess we're sort of going there at this point. Like, there, yeah, there is unfortunately, I only have like 20 minutes left myself, uh, but I'd like to pick this up sometime soon because I've been really thoroughly enjoying this conversation. Definitely. Um, but I would like to touch on some of the things you just said. I think I think it's actually very important. Um, you know, I, I do, you know, I'll, I'll concede that, you know, what I've said does sort of uh, manifest a certain degree of pessimism toward 
civilizational achievement. However, I mean, you read a text like Gaudium et Spes of the Second Vatican Council. Um, read uh, what, what the popes have taught over the past 50, 60 years. And I think what you'll see is, is uh, yes, yes, sort of a, a pessimism toward how much civilizational achievement can really do for the human person. However, it, it, it's not a repudiation of it. In fact, you know, Vatican II says, you know, in modernity, you know, that there are rays of light, rays of sanctification that are still present even in the most post-Christian of societies and, and, and indeed pre-Christian societies. I mean, uh, you know, yes, while I believe that returning to metaphysical principles and such is important, it's what's actually the most important is the life of grace itself, you know, living in union with God himself. Uh, cultivating the virtues and avoiding vice, living in Christ. And I think that that, you know, how, how we can sort of get at the intellectual foundations of why that should be our framework, yeah, that will require us to do a lot of metaphysics and thinking and philosophy. However, you know, just look at how, how Christianity approached, uh, came to approach, because I understand there was an initial much stronger initial skepticism in the early church, but it gradually came to be an attitude of, okay, let's look at this sort of fallen Roman empire and sort of see what in it can be sanctified, what in it can be baptized, what in it can be integrated within this, this, this uh, richer, at least in my judgment, richer vision of the cosmos. And so you can see even in our uh, liturgies, even in, in the development of the Roman liturgy, what we have is what what did the Roman liturgy? What's most what what most characterizes the Roman liturgy? What came to characterize the Roman liturgy? Well, the use of Latin for one, like the the, the integration of of the Latin language, uh, the, the the Gregorian chant, the chants of our liturgies, uh, a lot of you know architectural uh, elements that have gone into the 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 the, the a building of, of these uh, churches, these beautiful cathedrals, that was a result of, of the church sort of looking at what is true, what is good, what is what is noble, what, what, is, what I, is I gotta holy. I gotta step step in here real quick, uh, classical yeah, theist, because I know you don't have a lot of time left. So regarding the uh, Latin situation, while Latin is a very beautiful language and Latin mass is you know incredible, when it comes to how knowledge was transmitted to people, one of the issues that I've always had with this idea of the great chain of being is that in a way you are applying a control system over the populace when they don't really know what exactly is being said, if I understand it correctly. They go to church, they hear the priest uh, say what they say, and then they go home. After, obviously, the... Um, printing press we've had you know the great uh we've had the schism within the church the second time around and we have had people who you could say took things into their own hands for better or worse and a lot of times it was worse when it came to things like socialism and so on and so forth but the idea that uh, you would have a church that would impose this order upon everybody and say okay this is the right way of doing things I still can't help but think that that also resulted in a lot of abuse that people were able to level at their underlings, at the people who were not as um, well-connected as the people who were well, on top because of that control system. I, I almost wonder if, if the hierarchical structure of the church is probably something that 
a, a, like a true Nietzschean would probably admire <laughs> to some extent, maybe. Um, hey, what? <laughs> and, and but let, uh, but uh, let yeah, you, go ahead. I mean, I, I can address that later. Do, do go you mind for, if I t if I take that? Um, go for a it. little bit as well. Go like, for it. I'd, uh, man, like you're describing a, a flaw in human nature, less so than you know. Like I, I would see this, you know, and I, I'm not trying to be rude, but the church is an I look at it like a body, you know, the church is trying to create this system. St. Paul is, does too. There you go. The body politic. He's, he's, we're, we're trying to create this, this system. We're trying to create this structure that is going to try to bring a large amount of people who are busy working on farms, you know, like a load of drunk Irish people. And they're trying to bring them towards the fucking crazy shit that we're talking about here, the logos. They're trying to bring them towards more order in their life. Nietzsche himself even says this. The credit must be given to Christianity and for Buddhism for being able to bring a people who would have been having their nose in the floor to begin looking at something beyond themselves. Um, and these type of structures are necessarily going to be put into place in order to help take people. Now, people are always going to have to be led in some way. Like, look now, we freed everybody from Christianity and everybody just follows the fucking news as if it's the new church. There's no difference whatsoever. Like, it just does not work this way. I'm sure within um, the, the synagogues, there's the same group think as well that's annoying as fuck in many different ways. Take it outside of religion altogether and you have secular political parties like it, it, people people think in groups like we are group thinkers in some sense and i think catholicism certainly would have some type of hierarchical structure because it wants to try to establish an order over what people think to create a sort of structured way of working and all this and it's you know i don't know what i i'd like the free thinking and all this type of stuff but at the same time you have to there's there's other questions you need to ask because your ultimate goal is to try get towards the grace thing and you think Michelangelo really gave a fuck that he was, he had, you know, would Michelangelo have created the beautiful statues of David if he was sitting around like an autistic Nietzsche and questioning was the church really the truth and all this type of stuff? Probably not. He would have missed out on his lifetime of interacting with God actually by creating beautiful statues, secular or not, if he did this. So I think, um, I understand where you come from, but I think the, the Catholic Church gets an awful lot of hassle for this, where it's like, it's, it's more of a, it's just, it's a, a part of reality. You know, the, everything has this in some way. Uh, Neil, what do you think about it? <laughs> so I wanted to pull this up. And this is my, I think, in my opinion, and the Antichrist by Nietzsche. This is the hardest hitting bars, if you want to call it that, for just to be <laughs> funny. He says, the Christian concept of a god, the god of the patron of the sick, the god as a spinner of cobwebs, the god as the spirit is the one of the most corrupt concepts that has ever been put, set up in the world. It probably touches lower watermark in the ebbing evolution of the God type. God degenerated into the contradiction of life. Instead of being its transfiguration and eternal, yeah. In him, war is declared on life, on nature, on the will to live. God becomes the formula for every slander upon the here and now and every lie about the beyond. In him, nothingness is deified. And there will to nothingness is made holy whoo what do you i mean that there's a lot there yeah i mean i i just like totally it, it sums up everything we were talking about it really does and that one you know yeah i mean it, it it does kind of cover like probably like the the crux of the nietzschean critique for sure i just totally repudiated i mean i think that um if, if anything when you have a proper understanding of, of what we really mean by god it, it, it's just comes off of so much nonsense well uh, 
Mr. Thieves, yeah, uh, again, apologies to interrupt, but I again would like to kind of frame this a little bit with my understanding of um, what he, why he might be accusing this way. Now, again, this is a very big challenge, so sure. we'll, we'll, I'll just I'll lay it out there and you can think of it what you wish. But you said okay. earlier, for example, that the Christians at the beginning in the early church didn't have quite as, I don't want to call it aesthetic, but they, they, they didn't have, as we'll say, an appreciation for Rome as much as they did later on. Later on, they started to reintegrate that stuff into it. as they I mean, naturally, because of the persecutions. Yeah. So, so okay, so that, that would be one side of it. But I guess the frame with Nietzsche is that Christianity obviously comes from Judea. Judea has just essentially been nuked off the map. By, but it's also, by, it also, in my opinion, is the mar the marriage between Platonism and Ju Judaism. But yeah, and so this this is what I was going to get into is that what basically happens is Christianity. Uh, this is Nietzsche's s suggestion. This is the narrative, I should say. I'm not trying to blame Nietzsche for my thoughts here. And um, Christianity comes in as a religion of a literal group of slaves. It spreads among, and this is a historical thing that I love to get Neil's uh, fact checking on. It gets it spreads among largely the immigrants, largely the people who are in Rome who've been enslaved from the Mediterranean basin. And it is essentially a, like, in some sense, a communist movement that is rebelling against the patriarchal structures of Rome, which has, in some sense, the form that Christianity has now, the high, profound form of hierarchy that it has now. Now, Christianity, you could say, overthrows Rome while Rome is falling apart. I don't believe that Christianity was the cause of it, but it was certainly a part of the end. And then later on, the Romans... And you could say the the ancestors of these people bring back in Platonism, which actually might be some of the more sophisticated parts of this religion that we actually appreciate so much. And in some sense, this is a European tradition morphing and our instincts morphing Christianity into something that is, you know, platonic, I guess you could say, is something that's suitable to our taste, if you will, and bending it to, to suit ourselves and turning Christi Christianity into like an Aristotelian religion, which is how we're talking about it now. But at the beginning, it, Nietzsche would accuse it of being the, these, it's, it's just complete, it's almost like an incoherent religion. You you listen to a talk, like the Romans called it atheism when they first came across it. They, they, they are presented with it and they're sort of like, this is just a load of angry it's the same way as we would look at uh, the woke movement now. These people are just making up shit that just really doesn't really have any tangibility. And all the things that we we appreciate and the order we get out of it now came actually from Hellenic Greece, that we just had to bend and turn Christianity into Platonism to the people, as Nietzsche said. And then that would probably bring us into like the Dionysian early Christians and all that. Now, I've said a lot. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, let me just let me just jump throw, throw in a little bit. Go on, Neil. Christianity doesn't get Platonized by the post-Constantine church. Christianity is Platonized immediately, right away. The earliest Christians that we know about, the Carpocratians, I'll give you an example. There's a group called the Carpocratians that were living in Egypt, in the Alexander Egypt. We know about them from uh, Harpocrates, his son, um, his son, his name is Epiphanius, and he was deified, by the way. Deified? A Christian? Yeah, this is how wide-ranging these Christians were. But they had, not only were they worshipping Jesus, they had statues of Plato and Pythagoras, and they thought that Jesus, Plato, and Pythagoras are three people who attained the highest gnosis and were deified in apotheosis. Those, those are Christians early on, late first, early second century we're talking about. And, and, and so the reason why I, I wanted to bring it up is Philo. Philo is a Jew living in Alexandria before Christianity is even a thought in anyone's mind. And he's already bringing in the Platonic. He's even saying that Plato's just like another version, just another Moses, basically. And this was sort of what, what was happening in the first century. Middle Platonism was marrying Judaism, and Christianity comes out of that marriage as its offspring. That's basically how Christianity comes along. Now, yeah. orthodoxy is basically like 
looking around and saying, all right, some of this stuff is a little wild and let's stick to Paul. Let's stick to what Paul had in mind. That's kind of, it's sort of, it's sort of the, it's sort of a, a, a saying that Platonism is too much leaven for the dough, basically that type of thing. So you have actually have a, a, a step back from Platonism when the church comes around, if anything. Oh, it's, yeah. It's just, uh, so I have it the wrong way around. Mr. Theus, no, but I, I get your point though. I get your point though, because the church, no, the church is definitely trying to ch chop off a lot of uh, extra fat basically. And, you know, keep it simple, keep it so it's easy to control, easy to, if that makes sense. Well, that's the control element that I'm kind of talking I, I, about I'd here, actually, which is important. Yeah. I'd like to pick your brain on that. Maybe Mr. Theus has got limited time, so I'd love to hear what he has to yeah, say, yeah. and then maybe I'll pick your brain on that when we, we go. Yes, Mr. Theus, how much time do you have left? I want to make sure I respect the uh, limit here. Yeah, I, I, I got about five minutes, but uh, like, like I said, I'd, I'd, I'd like to pick this up some other time. I think it's a very good conversation. Um, what I would say is that I think, you know, and I understand that varying historical interpretations will uh, clash in terms of, you know, getting into the historicity of the Gospels or um, discerning, you know, the extent to which Paul is a reliable a conveyor of uh, the uh, primordial Christian revelation. I, I get that. And I understand, like, we're, we're not going to adjudicate those uh, questions from a historical point of view right now and right here. Um, what I would say is that I, I would just make the claim that uh, because I, I do believe, you know, uh, I just want to kind of preface by saying that I think that, yes, the more metaphysical and the more philosophical, uh, the more you pursue those considerations, those metaphysical and philosophical considerations about the divine, the more you will you, you will see, you will come to understand the radical coherence that obtains between uh, that conception of divinity and its incarnational implications. And so I kind of root the, the essential plausibility of Christianity in that coherence, that I think the more you study the existence and nature and attributes of God from a metaphysical and philosophical angle, the more you will see the, the rational plausibility of that reality becoming one with humanity in the incarnation and then digging into history and seeing where that may have been uh manifested now again that's the actual historical arguments that underlie that would have to be tabled for another time but what i would say is that if you kind of are already uh thinking along those lines and then you as a, as a matter of faith as a leap of faith uh you you accept the reliability of the gospels and 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 the general and and the essential uh reliability of the church to um adjudicate for us what is the authentic interpretation of divine revelation um then i think once you accept that and then you or at least you accept that as 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 one possible hypothesis and then you go back and read the gospels as they are presented to us through the church and you read the apostolic fathers and you read uh, the anti and post-Nicene church fathers, you begin to see, first of all, first and foremost, through the reading of the scriptures themselves, again, as presented to us through the church. So the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Pauline epistles, 
uh, the Catholic letters, Revelation, and then the Apostolic Fathers and the Ante and Post-Nicene Fathers. I would argue you do see a profound degree of intrinsic coherence between those elements of, 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 of uh, Greek philosophy that the Church has salvaged and biblical revelation. Um, and again, I understand that that can take us into a whole debate about historical, exegetical interpretation of various biblical passages. But again, just from the standpoint of someone who, who accepts uh, 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 the church as, as an outgrowth of this rational plausibility in the incarnational God, I, I see it as, as, as very plausible and persuasive so that I, I do not actually see the Christ of the Gospels as um, playing into the hands, so to speak, of of some like anti-intellectual uh, Roman uh, precursor to the woke mob or whatever you want to say. I think the more you read and digest the teachings of Jesus, uh, that the teachings of Jesus that he 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 proclaims with respect to his own ontological identity with the divinity, the more you you ponder that, the more you accept that, and uh, integrated within your your interior and spiritual life, uh, you will actually find in that a a message that is totally antithetical to that way of thinking. I mean, I, uh, Christ, what what he what he says, uh, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. That in itself, uh, mystically meditated upon, uh, opens up a whole uh, way of opposing. Uh, the kind of, uh, like, I guess you could say, communistic, uh, anti-aristocratic agitation that, that you might say channels the, the, uh, the, the, the true spirit of Christianity. I would say the, the more you meditate on the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, the more you see that's not the case. Um, but and it also opens up an aristocratic uh, uh, agitation on the other side, though. Like when people were saying that there's a similarity between uh, Christianity and uh, Nietzscheanism as far as the authoritarianism goes, I tend to agree. I think that there is some kind of a uh, some kind of a horseshoe theory, you could say, based on yes, yes, that's right, Uber Boy. I'm calling it out. Because both, but because both sides, they are not big fans of liberalism in general. So on one hand, you would have people that would be all SJW about poor people, and on the other hand, you would have people who would want this very strict hierarchy. Neither of those, I personally see as being the way to go. And I don't know; it's very difficult to navigate these waters. But I definitely appreciate again. I mean, yeah, I, I would just say like the the Catholic theological tradition with respect to that very question on how uh, we should approach, let's say, human inequality uh, and uh, how we should approach civilizational achievement in light of human inequality, uh, how we should approach the tension between those two things. I, I think the Catholic intellectual and theological tradition uh, synthesizes this very well. I mean, I, I think that the more we, we uh, tap into that, the, the more we'll come to realize that actually uh, Christ in his uh, transcendence of the world enables us to approach human inequality through a, a spiritualized lens that can thereby allow for uh, 
the aristocracy to thrive, for civilizational achievement to thrive, while also making sure that that doesn't turn us into uh, to like some kind of like a, a, a totalitarian state that would totally trample the rights of the poor. Um, again, I, I would just say Rerum Navarum is, I think, a very good uh, treatment of that. And I, I don't have time to really give a grand conclusion to, to like my thoughts on, on this discussion. Um, so well, we got to do a second one for that. sure. Classical Theist, yeah, I really I, appreciate I, I, I you coming in. I think we should. And we're going to do it on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Break the Rules. I consulted nobody about this. This is spur of the moment because I want to get more people on Patreon. So become a patron today. Patreon.com slash Break the Rules. <laughs> and we are going to do another Patreon exclusive where we are going to get down in the nitty gritty of liberalism versus both Catholicism on one hand and Nietzscheanism, the Ubermensch, on the other hand. So Yes. So, Levy, oh, you telling me you telling me there's this horseshoe that I can get that takes the most <laughs> evil parts of Nietzscheanism, Christianity, and merges them together to make this sort of like uber world world perspective. And we're gonna that's, we're gonna sell some Patreon. What's going on? That's right. We got to ride the horse on the rough road that is our <laughs> existence, which is why we need to equip ourselves with the horseshoes. But anyway. Okay. Good stuff. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. All right, I think this is the end um, of the stream, pretty much. Unless uh, I don't know, Neil Uberboy, do you guys want to stick around a bit? Because uh, I know classical has to go right now. Doesn't matter to me. I'd, I'd love to pick Neil's brain. I'd actually like to ask him. A couple All right, of things, excellent. Mr. Mr. Theus, yeah, let's do it. Uh, Mr. Theus, thank thank you very much for your time. And like, it was actually like it's pleasure. It's pleasure talking. It's really good to someone who's just polite, or, like well informed, well read. It's fantastic. So um, thank you very much. Yeah, then likewise. I, I really enjoyed your, your your thoughts. I actually just turned out uh, more interesting than I thought it was going to be. So, um, okay, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll 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 enjoy uh, fo following through with this in the future. Uh, thanks for having me on, and Thank I also you so enjoyed your thoughts, uh, Neil, as well. Yeah, nice meeting you. Thank yeah. you. And where All can right. people find you before you go? Yeah, yeah. So on, on Twitter, I'm at classical theist. Uh, theist was taken, so it's like cl a classical. <laughs> the yes without the t at the end uh it's kind of embarrassing but whatever uh, so that's where you can find me on twitter i'm also on telegram at uh classical theist on youtube also classical theist and also i stream on cozy.tv so that's cozy.tv slash classical theist uh big supporter of that platform and the community with it so uh yeah uh thanks again Thank you. And that tea, by the way, that's not a tea. It's the cross, which you are yearning towards as our other Christians to get closer to. So there we go. That's how that's how the Twitter thing works. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Th thank you. Uh, God bless you all. Thank you. God bless you. God bless all right, guys. So we're going to keep going here with uh, Neil Nostic Informant and the great and powerful Uber Boyo. Let me just adjust, adjust the camera over here so that it actually looks presentable and once again everybody if you are enjoying this be sure to smash that subscribe button right now smash the like button it's all very very important to get all the people in here break the rules bringing all the people together all the time so anyway uh uber boyo where would you like to take this conversation with the great gnostic informant i think i think the acid's finally kicking in man because there's like two labs in front of me right now, so. <laughs> Maybe maybe that's a, a stare into early Christianity. Well, look, Neil's like very like well informed and all this. Actually, Lev, I'd love to hear your thoughts and all that, and then I'd love to pick Neil's brains. Like, what's you're kind of frank because you're obviously always worried about the totalitarianism, which I get. Of course, you know, that's definitely not a nice thing to happen. But you're listening to all that. Like, what, what do you what do you see going on? Because I guess in some sense you've found yourself hosting these conversations quite a lot. 
um, between degenerate Nietzscheans, I guess, and the <laughs> pagans and sticks, you know, sticks doing his magic rituals and all this. And uh, what, what do you see going on? Like, do you, do you actually like, do you see us all just trying to say, what's the best way we can instantiate a hard right totalitarian government? Should we do it Nietzsche style or Christianity style? Or yes, do you think yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, I think that all the things you are guys you... are, I think all the things you guys are talking about is very important because these are things that liberals don't bring up at all. These are things that completely get ignored, so the people who are going to pick them up, they're usually usually going to be people who see a substantial problem with liberalism in general. So what I try to do is see if I could find some kind of a balance between making sure that we don't end up in like a shitty theocracy where it's way worse than anybody could ever imagine, or like a shitty, you know, top-down rule by the Ubermensch, where everybody who says anything critical of the Ubermensch ends up getting squashed, where it's not so much a system of uh, everybody recognizing that the Ubermensch is all-powerful and thus all-knowing, like a philosopher king, it's more of a system of a would-be Ubermensch putting on the clothing that would look like a philosopher king and that everybody is going to tell the Ubermensch is like the philosopher king because they don't want to get killed by this uh, person who wields so much power now. That's it's the primary about, concern there. Bodybuilder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, fair enough. And so I guess like you're looking at it and you, I guess you'd have like a very liberal perspective. I, I think Neil does as well, actually. And you see that like the, you're a great believer in the freedom and you think that, uh, of course, the, the religious system that we put together in Christianity may have served its purpose in history. But you think that we've evolved sort of past that and we want to embrace the liberal. Th there's an awful lot of good in liberal liberalism that we want to actually like try preserve. But obviously, it might have gone a little bit too far recently, and we want to try temper it as well. And so it's trying to trying to find a middle between all this crazy stuff that's going on. Absolutely. I mean, if it doesn't work out, then what are you going to do? But a lot of people seem to want to give up before even attempting, because it's way easier to say, well, all of this doesn't work, so I'm just going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And do you think it's a political question or do you think it's sort of like some type of spiritual thing? Like, would you listen to um, me? Maybe you could say people would be like stereotypical Nietzscheans. And do you feel, feel that there's like a is it like they're just thinking of the way to structure society and they're wrong? Or is there like this dense, aggressive energy in them where they're like clearly unhappy and they want to see everybody crash down and um, everybody going against the wall or something like that? And just no, the, the no, 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 I, I just agree. Like I don't like this idea that a lot of more liberalism, people, liberal people have have of those who are fighting against liberalism oh they're just all a bunch of loser incels and you know half sex incel and all that i don't see that at all i see a lot of people who are generally interested in having some kind of a community some kind of brotherhood where they would be able to lift each other up and i think a lot of the people who subscribe to bronze age mindset and all that they belong to that category of people i talked to a lot of them you know they're in shape they want to see a much more high trust society the thing, though, is, is that the way that they want to go about doing that, they end up putting all the power into the hands of one individual who's then going to be surrounded by a bunch of toadies that are only going to tell them what, the, uh, what that person wants to hear. And at that point, whatever freedoms that we may be taking for granted right now is going to be sucked out. 
and that's why I don't look at a theocracy or a, a Nietzschean wonderland as being good ways of solving it, nor am I looking at what's going on right now as being great either. I mean, look at this train derailment that happened right now. I don't know who the investigators are. I don't know how well they were able to investigate it. And a lot of people are just standing by and saying, oh, well, I don't know. You know, like nobody seems to care. And that's the problem that people perceive in this, uh, in this kind of indifference of society today towards things that if you really think about it people should be making way 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 more of an issue over and when they think back to the robust presidents like for example uh teddy roosevelt who got a uh, you know almost assassinated had a bullet in his chest yet was still making a speech in front of a crowd they think oh man like if only we had something like that thus they would look at somebody like vladimir putin riding a horse and saying okay this guy is like this is the closest guy that we currently have right now so because he's against america and america is all about all of this liberal nonsense and the transgenderism and the wokeness we are going to be on the side of putin now the mistake that they are making is that the freedom that they have to voice their concern and their distaste against biden whether we're talking about not even just fox news but whether we're talking about i don't know uh, alex stein for instance who was on the show as well being able to say whatever the hell he wants to say on tucker carlson or on his own show now on the blaze you know and much respect to him but the point is is that we have people who have the ability to voice their concern and to then transfer that concern into making certain policies in certain states, like Florida, for example, who's going in a different direction than other states when it comes to COVID, when it comes to other policies. So there is this freedom, which is not perfect by any means, and it should be much more free than it is right now, in my opinion. But we have that versus a situation in Russia, where if you criticize what's going on with the war right now, you're not going to be able to have this nice protest with uh, old Ron Paul there. You're going to be locked up and you're going to be sent to a detention camp. And then you're probably going to be, if you're a man, uh, lined up in order to go into the meat grinder in Ukraine. And that's going to be the fate that awaits anybody who criticizes the ubermensch in that future kind of society, which is why let's try and keep a lot of the good things that we have going for us here while trying to work on the bad things. The problem is that the liberals, they don't talk about the bad things. You talk about the bad things, and that's good. And I think more people should talk about the bad things. Let me throw something in there real quick, because there's an Assyrian tablet from 2800 BCE, and it says, our earth is a degenerate in these days signs that the world is speedily coming to an end bribery and corruption are common children are no longer obeying their parents the world is evidently a pro so i just wanted to point that out is that like the mindset of people thinking that we're in these degenerate days in the world oh this my generation that that was we were all everyone was so good and now the new generation sucks no but if this is that's just like a that's a natural feeling of like aging i think no, but to Boyo's point, if history is a cycle, then that could have been the bad old days coming around, which then end up that getting replaced true. by better times with strong men building up those better times. So I'm not, uh, you know, I'm kind of on Boyo's side there. That could be a possibility. But also at the same time, you could, you, we, can, we can literally pull up any year and find something similar to what I just said. So it's this, that, that cycle seems to always be in the same spot. It always seems to be like people are... I'm just saying. I'm just giving you my. It's, no, it's 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 true. It's even like you know what was the one thing I'm one thesis I'm presenting is that, you know, if you wound back two thousand years, 
Christianity would be this woke movement and then Rome would be there and it's like it's like it's, it's like it's the exact same thing as we're in yeah, now and there'd be all these re Republican pagans wearing the, like make the emperor great again or some shit like this and you're like what is going on is this surreal so we live, we live in that eternal story Mr. Neil that, that brings us back I'd, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts because I, I said um, that story about Christianity starting off as like a, you know a very Jewish affair at the beginning and maybe they were like maybe a little bit bitter towards Rome because they had just nuked Judea basically and the pl Platonism came into it afterwards but you corrected me you said no that's not correct and it has a much different sort of uh, etymology and growth so maybe you could tell us a little bit of the philosophical history and then I'd also love to hear a little bit more about maybe like the Dionysian ritual side of things where the you know like me and Lev right now I'm seeing like four Lebs at the moment. We're all the Christians getting, getting blasted on. I'm, on I'm like Krishna. I'm like Krishna's on. heavenly form uh, being shown to you right now. You're telling me, you're telling me like, don't take the horseshoe, but there's fucking two of you. So I'm like, all right, wait a second. This is well, type of psyop. Like, what's happening here? The Mr. Earl, Neil, I love to hear this. The early Christians were very Dionysian in a lot of ways. I mean, you have different groups, such as, for example, the Nasins. The Nas it means serpent in Hebrew. Mm. Not seen. They were the not. They were the serpent people. Yeah. By the they way, were, is, were... is that why the rapper Lil Nas X is called Nas? Because he's like that whole serpent thing, the whole Satan thing. Anyway, go on. That might be true, actually. I don't know. Uh, but anyways, these Nasins, they were living in Phrygia, which is modern day Turkey. They were Christians. They weren't. They didn't call themselves Gnostics, which the later Christians called them Gnostics. The reason why they call them Gnostics is because they did believe in an idea of gnosis, which is you know becoming so. Basically, it's becoming you're so based that you're you become a god. That's that's what gnosis really is. You're just so fucking based. You're, you're perfect. Like there's nothing wrong with you. You know everything. Like that's the idea. So th there's a there's the highest form of gnosis is apotheosis, where you literally attain godhood. And you you are, you are now given uh, a temple, and there's a statue of you, and people are going to worship you because they want to imitate your ways. They want to become like you. That was the idea. That's like the pagan idea, is to. You're, you're, the image that you're worshiping is something you want to sort of like replicate, but uh, the Christians take this take these ideas on the Pythagoreans, the Platonists. Early on, the earliest Christians that we know about, uh, like the Nasins, for example, they were doing. He was the Nasin preacher was this guy. We don't know his real name. We only know him by the Nasin preacher because they, the uh, the the church like they did not preserve, they didn't want to preserve any of his stuff for whatever reason. They just didn't want to. But he was so famous in his time. I mean, the only reason why we know about this is because Hippolytus, one of the church fathers, talks about it. So it was Irenaeus, and I think Justin Martyr talked about him too. And they were saying that this guy was going around and saying he was doing this syncretism thing where there were there where he would say the Osir the uh, the Egyptians worshipped Osiris, uh, the um, the Phrygians worshipped Attis, the Greeks worshipped Dionysus, the uh, but the, really all those were just ver versions of the Christ. So he was like saying mm. he was applying all these different deities and saying they were what they really were trying to do. They were trying to find Christ. Here's the real deal. Christ. And he was like, she was so but he was doing this weird syncretism thing. Obviously, that, that later becomes heretical. But you also have Sethians and they were they were, according to Hippolytus, they were doing initiation rites that were bacchic in the form of like orgiastic having like festivals and doing these like. Um, so what were the what were the name again? Sorry, the Sethians, and Sethians. so so the idea you you know how you know how there's Christians today that do speaking in tongues. Mm -hmm. Um, they are called the uh, what are those Christians called? Epis, not Episcopal. Uh, 
Whatever Wait, they're called. Were, weren't you close to one of uh, like a sect like that, or more? Yeah, like I was going, at the end of my Christianity. This is what I really was like. This is where the spirit is. So I was doing my research, and I was finding out about these early Christians. And this is they were doing this. They were doing this thing where they let Christ would enter you. You would feel the Holy Spirit, and then he would take you over, and then you would just start speaking in tongues. That was the spirit. But check, check this out. This is not a new thing that Christians are doing out in thin air. This is what the Bacchics were doing. The Bacchics were doing the same thing. And the Illusionian yeah. Mysteries, the Illusionian Mysteries, when you would get initiated, you would eat the bread, and then you would drink the wine. Eating the bread was eating the body of Demeter. And drinking yeah, the drink, yeah, and drinking the the wine was drinking the blood of Bacchus, and the two gods would enter you, and you would go into a state, and then and then after that initiation, after that fret, they call it the Bacchic frenzy. After that frenzy, you no longer fear death, so they would just be like, oh, "I'm saved." So yeah. a lot of these ideas that we see, and like some some of the Pythagorean models, like the there's a group called the Valentinians, and this guy named Marcus Magus. He, uh, he, wrote, he wrote about how Jesus' name, Jesus Christ, in Greek, has a gematria of 888. And so this is this idea of the, in the, this, is, this ties to the logos thing. Because in, in the Greek alphabet, there's 26 letters. There's, no, I'm sorry, 24 letters back then. Uh, 24 letters, and uh, eight of them were, um, I think he said octagods, heptods, and decods. So there's three different types, 888. So he literally, literally is the logos because he's the word incarnate, and his, mm. and his it, even his name says so. So they had this like math shit going on, and they thought that the the there was a monad. There were monists, like like the Pythagoreans were monists. Mm -hmm. The monad is the beginning. The monad splits off into a duad, and from the duad you get the Christ, who's the logos, and then you get Sophia, a goddess, who is also Zoe, and Zoe means life in Greek. So you have you have the mother, and then they 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 had a different. They're they're, they're the ones that came up with the Trinity, because they said that there was the mother, the father, and the son, which later on it gets changed. They change it to the mother, father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. But you can see, like, if you actually look at all these different groups of Christians, you can see there's a, there's always one thing that they give that the church picks out of. So the church later on is looking at these these groups, and they're taking. Interesting. Up, yeah, it's like they're they're it's like they're um. Pulling the best. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's what happens with that. That's what you get. I mean, not um, all because there's a group called the Canites. These guys were just a bunch of, bunch of, uh, that what do you, I guess you could say they're a bunch of degenerates because they're like, <laughs> they thought that Cain was the good guy because they were uh. Pythagoreans. Pythagoreans were, were vegetarians and they were so, the vegetarianism was so important to them that they decided that, that Cain had to be good because he was a tiller of the land or Abel was a, was a herdsman who offered up meat. And they were like, no, 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 no. Cain is the good guy. So we're going to call ourselves Cainites. So they're, don't, none, none of their shit got, got taken seriously. So, so but, that's um, actually, that's actually interesting. One last thing, and I because this, this is important. Their model is based off a dude named Marcion, who wasn't a Cainite. He didn't believe in the vegetarian stuff. But he did believe – and by the way, Marcion claimed to be a student of Paul himself. This is where – so we're like we're getting early days. Marcion – which I don't even know if that's true because Marcion – whatever – he claimed to be a student of Paul, but he might have been a student of a student of Paul. That probably made more sense. But anyways, the point is, Marcion, he was the first person to put together a canon of books and call it a Bible. He took the letters of Paul and the book of John. That was it. It was just yeah. Paul and John, nothing else. Yeah. And so he, um, he said that the Old Testament God 
isn't the god of the universe. He's just one of the many daemons, one of the many angels and demons that are that are in the lower world. And he wasn't a good one. He was kind of dumb, actually. He said, he said, I'll give you an example. Look at Genesis when he's looking for Adam in the garden. If he's all-knowing and all-powerful, he should know where Adam is. And he should know the future, and he would know that Adam would take a bite of the garden. He didn't know that. He can't be all-powerful. Then he also said, also, look at the part where Elijah gets called baldy by some kids, and he sends out a, he calls on Yahweh and sends a bunch of she-bears to kill and eat the kids. He said, no. The, all, the good all-god that I know about wouldn't do that. So Jesus had to have been the son of a different god. And that god is the is the what they call the demiurge, the, the, the perfect all being. The, play, the Plato's all good, basically. Mm-hmm. So my understanding mm-hmm. was Platonist too. But yeah, I just wanted to throw that up. That's what they were coming from. There was that, those are all Platonist ideas. And so the historically, um, and again, I'm going to start waxing historical analogies over this. So I'd love for you to try to break them down and tell me yeah. where I'm incorrect. Um, you have these... You have Alexander the Great conquer all of this area and establish the Hellenic um, world. And then obviously all of the the Jews are then educated and they speak Greek to each other, hence why an awful lot of Christianity was even written down in Greek. Platonism is obviously going to be well installed inside of all of their their minds as a consequence. What we see happen then is Christ show up. Um, Obviously, after Jesus shows up, there's this explosion of all the interpretations interpretations yeah does it look to you like it was something quite coherent like would we look at it as the way that we have like marxism then we have leninism and then stalinism is it very intellectually coherent or is it something like we have these cultural habits and groups so we have would it be like nowadays if we looked at like a vegan and then we'd maybe look at a pacifist and then we'd maybe look at satanist they might be like the canites for example and these are all people with these moral habits and i guess they have their different take and eventually, you know, the, the, the establishment is, is going to pull together some type of way of seeing the world that takes a little bit, you know, you're going to eat the veganism and eat the bugs and then you're going to do this and all this. And is that like the, the church constructing Christi- the Christian religion out of all this type of stuff? You're going to eat like, the bread and drink the wine. You're going to eat the yeah. bread and drink the wine, motherfucker. It's, like... it's kind of in the middle because like what you have is you have Jesus coming, coming and he gets killed. And then you don't hear... There's no writings about Jesus, or Jesus doesn't write anything down. Which, by the way, a lot of mythicists who think he doesn't exist, they point to that and say, that means he didn't exist. No, no. Pythagoras didn't write nothing down. Socrates didn't write. People not writing things down, it happened all the time. It's actually very common. It's actually more common than not that you, would not, you wouldn't be a writer. Someone else would write something for you. You would go to a, a library and a scribe would write down. And it was a very expensive process. So this wasn't just happening. It's not, we have, like, not like we have just uh, journals laying around. So... Anyways, with that being said, Jesus comes, he lives, he dies. No one even knows who he is. He's, and in fact, most of the history books around his life don't mention him because it's like he's kind of just a guy who got in trouble and got killed. But he, my guess is, and a lot of people agree with people, some people don't. My guess is he, he made some predictions that came true. For example, the, the temple falling. Because, and the reason why I think that is because right after about 70 AD, all of a sudden people start writing about Jesus. You get Paul's letters. You get the Gospel of Mark. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's all happening right around the time the temple falls. You get, boom, you get uh, a Christianity. So what I think happened is people are like, oh, there was this sage Jesus. We thought he was the Messiah when he was here, but then he died. And like, it was like, whatever, that's the end of that. But the temple really did fall. He was right. 
So I think I yeah. think um, after that happens, d- different groups start to sprout up, and these are people who are either hypsisterians, probably which, which are Greek monotheists living in Phrygia. Like, I, so, so are these all Jews? Like, would these be Jews then? Who it's are, both. Are with... It's both. So you get, so right now, like, this, this is this is actually funny because in Alexandria, Egypt, you have a huge Jewish population. So that this is all a bunch of people who are ready to, to take in something like Christianity. But you also, in, in Phrygia, which would be Turkey, you also have these people called Hypsisterians who are Greeks, and they're not Jews, but they're monotheists. They believe in Theos. Mm. There's just Theos, and they worship Theos. And so those are the people that Paul is, is writing to. Those are the church. Like, like, nobody ever asked that question. Paul Because Paul's letters come before the Gospels. You know that? Paul's letters are before Mark. <laughs> Who's Paul writing to if Christianity is not a thing yet? He's writing to these 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 hypsisterians, these monotheistic uh, proto Christian types. You know what I mean? And does does Paul strike you as like a you know? This is very hard to project back in him, but it, does he seem like this savvy guy who's like really like I'm going to throw together a movement now, or is he a true believer who's trying to push this out? Like what what do you see there? About Mark? About no, Paul? Paul oh, Paul. Yeah, Paul is like. Uh, you know, he is, he's like, he, you know, he's like a marketer or like a smart business person. He's, <laughs> he, he's trying to sell it, but he's also, he's kind I want to, I want to say manipulative, but he even admits it in his, in his epistles. He'll say, I am one thing to Christians. I'm another to the, uh, I'm one thing to Jews. I'm another to the Gentiles because I'm all things to all people. That's a true salesman thing to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what, like if you're selling cars, when if a, if, if a Marxist liberal comes in, you're not going to start talking. You're not going to throw on your red Trump hat. And you're going yeah, yeah. to act like them for a little bit because you want to sell that car. Yeah. So that's how Paul is. Paul is a, a, a chameleon. He's going to different places and he's blending in. He even writes about – and this is what he feels about pagans. In, in 1 Corinthians, he's like, you know what? You might go to a party and they might sacrifice a meat to, to an idol to a god they might and, and you might eat that meat who gives a shit like, i don't care you shouldn't either and then he said but then then he then he then he pulls it back a little bit and then he says but if you're with a christian who has a weak conscience just just don't eat the meat look they're, they're not going to understand like he's like you can see this is an elite mentality he's thinking he's a high thinker i, I actually kind of like paul in some ways but there's other things he says that are kind of weird. I, I got another question about Paul, though, before we go on. There was that story about the road to Damascus and about him seeing this bright light and all that. Do you think that Paul was somebody who would have made that story up? Or do you think it would have been something that he would have actually had an experience with, be it a UFO or whatever? You know, I'm not going to get into that. but yeah. I, this is, I take a weird position on that. I think Paul saw something. I think something happened to Paul and he changed his life. That's what I think. Because otherwise, what is he doing? Why is he doing all that? I actually believe that Paul experienced something. So I don't know how hmm. what form that was, but I actually, I would, I would, I would grant that because things like so, that happen all the time. It's not like a random. It's not like it's like impossible. There's, um, Go ahead. So, so there's there's an accusation that you hear from the Nietzschean perspective that Paul, like, obviously he was Jewish. He was from Judea. 
and Rome had literally just annihilated his home. You know, the most horrific thing possible, like to wipe your country off the face of the earth. That's that's fucking something else. Yeah. Now, do you do you like like you know? It's very hard to read people's intentions, but do you think it's possible that Paul might have been motivated by some type of vengeance, and he was like, "I want to go in here and I want to change how these people think, and I want to, um, you know, get this new religion in and and get rid, like get rid of the Greek gods." Like, is there this aggression towards paganism and Romanness, yeah. or is that all? No, there I, think, is. I think there's I think there's some truth to that. I think Paul I think Paul not only did he want, but I think he thought that Rome would fall. And I think that he believed in the message of the he believed because the, the the Jewish Messiah before Jesus was supposed to come and usher in the kingdom of heaven and make all the nations bow to 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 Jerusalem. That didn't happen with Jesus. So they ended up having to so the Christians have ended up going with, well, there's also a suffering Messiah. And some people thought there'd be two Messiahs. Right now, the Christians think there's a second coming. But, there's, there, but early on, there was two Messiahs. One of them is called the triumphant Messiah. The triumphant Messiah is the one who comes and leads the armies into Rome and destroys Rome. That's the triumphant Messiah. The, the suffering Messiah is the one who comes in and dies for everybody. That was Jesus. But now Christians just rolled it into one and just say he's just going to come back. It's a second coming. But yeah, so back to Paul, though, mm. I do think that Paul thought that Rome was going to fall because he believed he's a believer. He's not like an atheist. He believes this is going to work. He thinks in that he believes in this stuff, you know. So I think yeah, I think I think he thought that he was doing God's work by going into the Gentile world yeah. and teaching the, the, you know, the Messiah came. He's already here. Like that was and do you. Do you t detect like a strong animus towards Rome or like an, an aggression? Or is it more just like he's like literally like I actually believe that this is the end. Uh, this is a new era we're moving into now. It's it's maybe not actually aggressive. I you know I'm trying to detect. Ask psychologically: Is he motivated by resentment well, or not? He might not. He, be. he ends up getting arrested and he ends up writing letters in jail in uh, Turkey. He's a, he's in a Roman jail in Turkey, surrounded by um. What are they called? The, the not they're not soldiers. They're called something else. But um, legionnaires. No, it's something. It starts with a P. Uh, Praetorians. Praetorians. Oh, Praetor yeah. yeah. He's surrounded by these Praetorians, and he's like, "I'll convert these guys." He's like, "I'm going to start talking to these Praetorians." And so he's writing about talking to Praetorians, and he's like, "Some of these people are." And he says it in the letter. I forgot which one. I think it's um, uh, which letter is it? A letter to the letter to the Ephesians, actually. And he's like, yeah, some of these guys, some of these people are going to get saved, and they're, and they're and this is going to be a bit, this is going to change everything. Like he's optimistic about this thing. Wow. So yeah, and 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 here's and another yeah, yeah. Christianity is is very Romanized in that sense because it is it is drawing from concepts in Greek religion in a lot of ways, like like we talked about with yeah. the with the Lucianity mysteries thing, the Bacchic frenzy thing. So there's it's not a surprise to me that Christianity ends up taken over the world of religion by the by the time we get to Constantine, there's, there's basically two religions left and that's yeah. the sun god religion that started with elagabalus elagabalus brings in a, and they're both they're both eastern they're both yeah. semitic religions yeah, all yeah. all the western traditional zeus and athena religions they're gone but nobody cares that's all old they want to know <laughs> they want these because what happens and this is kyle ruck taught me this kyle ruck you know what kyle ruck is he's uh he, he wrote he wrote the book about how the Illusionian Mysteries were taking psychedelics. He also was on Jordan Peterson's channel. He was on my channel twice. He, he taught the, that the Illusion Mysteries were what, sorry? They were taking psychedelics. 
Interesting. And does he have any thoughts that uh, like Christianity came in and started to present itself as the, the, the new version, the update of Dionysus in those? Mm. Yeah. Yes. Oh, he, that's what he said. He said wow. that he, he basically thinks that Jesus was like a Jewish Jewish Bacchus, basically. That's what he thinks. So, so Christianity was pro-psychedelics as well. Well, I don't know if he's no, I don't think he says that. There's other people who think that. I don't think Ruck says that. But Ruck thinks that what why Christianity was so Christianity and and the sun god religion, which became Sol Invictus, they were seen as exotic. Like, do you know how people yeah. in America or in, they're always like, oh, I want to be a Hindu or Buddhist because it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, how, yeah, that's how yeah. Romans were. They're like Christianity. What's that? It sounds yeah. exotic. Or, well, well, first they were into Judaism, right? First, Judaism was a thing that was appealing to some of the Romans. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was um, because Christian, because Judaism was legalized by Augustus, so it was. Oh wow! Even, yeah. Even though people didn't like it, and they were like very anti-Semitic, all even back then, Augustus was like, "Well, it's they're in our empire, so he legalized it." And um, is it? And then he made this. He he made a law that said, as long as the Christians, I'm not asking you to worship me. Because everyone else had to worship him. You got to worship me if you want to be in this. But he made a little side note for the Jews. Said, All right, I know you're not going to worship me. I know you guys had this thing. He's like, but as long as you offer a sacrifice and pray for me, then you can keep your thing. And they were like, deal. So they were doing this. They were doing this. And up until the time of Caligula. And Philo, right, Philo writes about this. This is the reason why we know this story. This is a crazy story. Philo says that Caligula was a madman. And he was, you know, everyone knows this. He has this giant mansion boat that he's throwing parties on. Made the horse a senator. Yeah, he made a horse a senator. He's nuts. He goes into Judea, and he says, "Why aren't you worshiping me?" And they're like, "But, but, but, uh, but Caesar, you, we already we made the deal with with your with 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 Augustus that we're gonna we we all, we, we literally just slayed a bull for you. <laughs> was, it, was it to me? Well, no, it's to Yahweh, but it's for you." for your success <laughs> like, it's not enough so I, I, I like how you said like larry david by the way when you said that but anyway go yeah, on it happened this is what happened and so it got ugly it got really ugly to the point where he started threatening to kill everybody it was going to be a genocide but somehow they got out of it i forgot what philo said something happened where they ended up like getting out of it and philo was like i thought that was the end of my life he's like i was shaking he was like my heart was beating i thought i was gonna get killed right then and there but somehow he got out of it. But anyways, just to show you what, what was going on, Christianity and, and Elagabalus like started this new religion that came out of Syria. And the reason why this, this religion was so, so popular is because Elagabalus was a son, was a grandson of Julia Domna. Julia Domna was a, a descendant of Mark Antony and um, not only Mark Antony, but also uh, Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. And so they had a sacred priesthood in Syria that was, mm. set, that was set up there since those days, since since before them actually, mm-hmm. and she was chosen to marry Septim, uh, Emperor Septimus Severus. So when she when she married him, her priesthood and her grandson Elagabalus, who takes over and becomes emperor, they changed everything. The Roman, but you know what it says in the Historia Augusta? They not only brought in those rights into the Roman Imperial cult, they also legalized Christianity and and the Samaritan religion. So now, now people are are being exposed to all these Eastern religions. That's they got the ball rolling. So by the time they get to Constantine, that's it. There's only there's only two religions in, that that are popular. It's Christianity and Sol Invictus. And what about the Mithras one that they were doing in the army? That was the Persian. That, that, was, that was the Sol Invictus one. So Sol, ah. Invictus, Sol Invictus was actually a 
was a synchronous syncretist religion where Mithra and uh, and Helios were sort of rolled into one god. It was Mithra, Helios, and Zeus rolled into one god. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So sort of like what was super, super god? Like the great like Jupiter is already the greatest of the gods, but they combined him with the sun Helios and Mithras, and now it's like. Boom! Now there's nothing even better than that. It's, well, it's like sort of like a trinity in a weird way, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's that's, that's, the, that's the reason Platonism is the reason why we have trinity because the plate the Platonists like the Neoplatonists they 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 believed in the called triadic. It was called triads, but they would take three gods and they would roll them into one, and they would like play with that in a little bit. They're like playing, so, like playing Legos with gods. And so you have the people on one hand, I guess you could say the like around the the Mediterranean basin, and um, they are looking at Christ and they're synchronizing him with Platonism and they're synchronizing him with various gods in, around them as well. And then up in the high empire of Ro the Roman empire, they're doing something actually somewhat similar. They're, they're like, they're blending the gods together and, yeah. and, and doing it maybe from a different direction. And so the competing religions was these two forces and very, very interesting. And yeah. do you see, um, when Christianity began to move into Rome, Okay, actually, here's a better question. So what was going on then with Julian the Apostate? Like, was he trying to bring people back to this more Mithras, yeah. Sol Invictus religion? Or was he trying to go back to, like, strict secular Hellenism in some sense? Because I know he wasn't trying to go back to Zeus and the boys. I, it was actually, uh, yeah. like, Platonism as well. A lot of people yeah, it was, so it was the, there. yeah, it was like, he was going, like, he, he saw Helios as the highest good. So, yeah, it was this, it was mm -hmm. the Sol Invictus. It was, but this thing, but here's the thing about the Sol Invictus religion. The Sol Invictus religion was not like Christianity where you had to have all your devotion to one God. The Sol Invictus religion was like, okay, the Egyptians have a priesthood dedicated to Serapis. That's that he's their daemon. He's their mediator between so, the soul Invictus and, and humans. The Jerusalem temple, Yahweh, he's their mediator. Athena in Athens, she's the mediator. Every city had a local God, what they called the mm. daemon. And so it was very polytheistic in that sense, but the ultimate god was the Sol Invictus god. Mm, so, okay. so, so yeah, so uh, so Julian and that the, was sort of blended with Jupiter. Yeah, oh, okay. Ju Julian the Apostate. Guess he's the only person up until nineteen what is it nineteen forty eight when um when the Jews went back to Israel, right? Nineteen forty eight. Guess who was so. the last person to want to move the Jews back to Israel? Out of all people, was Julian the Apostate, a pagan, because he wanted to. He hated Christianity so much. He wanted to take Christianity or take his Jews from away from Christianity, bring it back to the Jews because he wanted there to be the Jewish God in Jerusalem. And he wanted mm. he went to he wrote a letter to the Alexandrian saying, why are you all Christians? You guys used to have Serapis. He was uh, Serapis and Isis. They're amazing yeah. gods. Why, what's so wrong? What's wrong with them? Like he was trying to plead for those gods. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Let, let's uh, go back a second here. Here's what I'm confused right. about. You were saying that Yahweh was a mediator god, but that goes totally against the whole idea of the Hebrew religion being no, one where their god is the ultimate. We're outside of Judaism now. This mm. is what. This is how. This is how he would see it. Ah, he so other other people saw the Jewish care. god as being yes, different from what the Jews saw him as. He doesn't care what the Jews think about their god. He's saying they don't know nothing. They're just ah. worshiping a mediator. But this is like the early Christians, like Marcion, who was like, no, that Yahweh's not that great. He's just a dumbass. He didn't even know where Adam was. That's the same, <laughs> the same idea. It's not that Yahweh doesn't exist. Yeah. It's that he's just a lesser God. So you see that with, with Julian the Apostate. Um, but here's another thing, because people, people always wonder this. 
when when Rome fell in 479, wait a minute, why didn't the church fall too? Well, turns out the barbarians were Christians because the uh, the Arians were going into Germ Germany and Gaul and teaching and spreading Arianism, and so they were all Arians. So when 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 Rome fell, Christianity just replaced Christian just it's just Christianity still. Christianity never skipped a beat in Rome when Rome fell. But not only that, the Senate the Senate stayed too. The Senate the Senate convened on the next day after Rome fell. So people think like Rome fell and everything was barbarian pagans. No, it was civilized Christians and people just who just the reason why they're called barbarians because they didn't speak Latin. They're just speaking German shit. So they that that's what they call barbarians. But yeah, they were Christians that, that invaded Rome. Neil, do you think that there was something in Christianity that made it a lot harder for there to be a lot of advancement a la the Roman uh, Republic when it comes to aqueducts, various technologies, uh, because it seems to me like when you have this emphasis on our guy is the only god that ever existed and all these other ones are just like pagan nonsense, it's a very different approach than the Sol Invictus one that you mentioned, which, at least to me looking at it from the outside in, looks like it would allow for a lot more flexibility in how people conduct their lives, for better or worse. I don't know, like, what do you think? Do you think that if Sol Invictus would have been the path forward instead of Christianity, we would have had uh, better technology and more progress, however you would define that, uh, earlier than we actually did? And, then, and there's another misconception that if it wasn't, like, a lot of Christians will say that the other pagan religions were all just a bunch of degenerates that were, you know into you know human sacrifice and orgies and mo lot mo problems but the, the the teachings of pythagoras are central <laughs> the teachings of the of the of the pre-socratics plato all these minds the, like instead of having jeremiah and isaiah you you're looking at plato and pythagoras and and all those guys so they had this idea of piety and and doing good and having mm -hmm. morals and having principles that was always part of the deal so it's not like if christianity didn't not like Christianity brought that in, but yeah, they so so I think with Solon with the Solon Victus religion, I think it's less so. I think Nietzsche would have had a lot different Christian Nietzsche would have had a lot different uh critiques on this religion because it actually has more it there's actually less of a um emphasis on you know giving letting the poor get salvation, it's more about this idea of like doing good and having principles, gaining knowledge. Let the, the the better let the better rise up. You know what I mean. So I think I don't know what he would think about it, but I think he'd like it more than Christianity. Yeah, he, he talks about this quite a lot, in even in genealogy of morals, where um, it's so interesting to look at our modern world and we see how much we value pity, compassion. We'd understand it now, maybe even empathy, but I don't think that's a that's more of a technical turn than the moral. But um, that's just not present in the ancient world in any way it's way more contextualized like it's it's pity is obviously a, a a virtue but it's hierarchical so there's like much higher bravery is a much higher virtue than pity for example right and then um, when he would talk about the the romans and the, the the greeks yes he would absolutely point to exactly what you're saying like they had their own system of he, he points this out when he talks about the, the thing you read from the antichrist whereas um they had a vision of god that permitted them to be bombastic creative brave and it had, uh, you know, Jupiter back then was an empowering image of strength and vitality and success and virtue. 
and they followed all these the they, they were very moral people the word moral comes from the roman word mente or mo, the more or something like this which means the the kind of way of the ancestors and so there was like there was morality before christianity absolutely there was right. like people thinking about this stuff very very deeply before it you're actually describing it in such a way that i think i'm kind of i'm trying to under, i'm trying to model this in my head because what it seems like is that platonism had so saturated all of the hellenic world everything that basically when christianity starts running around it's like christianity's just it, like this is it's a big claim but it doesn't seem like christianity re really is adding anything into that into that theological side of things it maybe it's making things supernatural but it's not really adding anything in terms of like a sophisticated moral system it sounds like it was all already there like yeah. it sounds like the philosophical mm -hmm. first principles were all just completely put together but, yeah, just, just, just to be a devil's advocate, though, if we're not talking about uh, the high minded philosophy, but just talking about things like help the poor and, you know, the weak shall inherit the earth. That's not really from the New Testament. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like uh, it's easier for, uh, you know, the whole uh, uh, camel through the uh, eye of a needle type of thing like that. Those. Yeah. Like those seem well, to be I'll very Christian. That. Yeah. So I know some scholars who put together what they call Q. It's a reconstruction of things that that probably weren't made up, that probably were actually said by Jesus. You should check it out. It's called the Q. I'm actually going into- Trust the plan. And actually, the guy, the guy- uh, <laughs> It's called Q. <laughs> the guy teaches at Toronto right, University, right. and I'm going there to- uh, this I've got, I've got a message left, right? I've got to sign off and press- Oh, the all right. All right, we're, we're going to be done soon, but yeah, go go on, Neil. Yeah. I was just going to say, so there's this, there's this thing called Q that John Kloppenborg, Toronto University, put together, and it's the things that Jesus probably said that probably weren't made up, but- so the idea of the one that gets attributed to Jesus the most is the golden rule to love your neighbor like you love yourself. But it turns out that was not only said by Hillel the elder 60 years before Jesus in Israel, but you also have that coming from the Buddha as well. So that idea was already floating around. He probably said it in his own way. But uh, as far as like um, things that Jesus probably said, he probably did some like he probably cursed. He probably said that some of the stuff about um like a lot of the stuff about Israel, about the Pharisees, about the Sabbath. Like if you're, if you're like, this is the thing that's something Jesus probably said. If your animal falls into a Sabbath, uh, aren't you going to get it? Like, why would you just make that up about somebody? That sounds like it's such a specific thing. It's, it's very localized. First of all, it's, we're talking about people that he's living with. It's not like, it's not like some grand Roman national, like this is something that's very specific to him. So there's a lot of stuff like that, but there also are there also there is some pretty deep philosophical ones too. I forgot. I can't Wait, animal falls into the Sabbath. Well, what do oh, you mean? The, Jesus is living in a time of Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. They're all different, three different groups uh, that have different views on certain things. The, some of the more radical ones th said on the Sabbath, the, day, the Ten Commandments says keep the Sabbath holy. So you can't work on the Sabbath, which means if you're animal. Work, working means like tending to your animals, planting stuff. If your animal falls into a ditch and it's crying, it's screaming. You have to let it scream all day till till sundown and listen. And and you have to, you can't let it. You can't. It's like freaking out, and the, you have to let it there because that's what the Sabbath says. You cannot work. Pulling your animal out of the Sabbath would be called work, and that is that is uh that you're going to hell for that. Jesus Damn. came along and said, "Bro, if your animal falls into the Sabbath, just fucking pick it up, bro. Who gives a shit?" <laughs> He had a very stoic what mind, very stoic, very cynic mind too. He's very cynical. Mm. Actually, John Clappenborough, the guy I talking about, he thinks Jesus was a cynic. He thinks that there was a group of cynics that were Jewish, and Jesus was part of that group. 
Wow, just so. just a quick aside, by the way, uh, it reminds me of this uh, story about how in the Talmud they talk about if a Gentile was to take a piece of ham, like a piece of pork, and drop it into the soup that for some reason would be made outdoors, like a soup for the entire Jewish village, then the way that you know whether or not to eat the soup or not is you have to measure the amount of liquid of the soup relative to the amount of ham that was put in there. And if it does not go beyond a certain amount, then... The ham That's is true. kosher. You could eat the ham. So now I'm imagining there would be certain saboteurs, certain people who would intentionally make a deal with the Jews there who would go and launch like a piece of ham into that whole outdoor soup thing intentionally exactly the size to make that ham be kosher so that way Jews can eat free ham. But anyway, that's just... <laughs> that's an aside. <laughs> uh, and with that, fellas, I think uh, this is the end of the stream. Uh, Uberboyo, okay, yeah, any, any final thoughts? Uh, no, it's, it's good. Doing. I just, like, Neil, Neil has such a comprehensive knowledge of all this. It's just, it's very, very interesting to dig into it and I'm come to see it because, like, I'm constructing narratives and it's it's always good to just get checked at the door to make sure I don't, like, start spinning all crazy. crazy Check your privilege. True, so. You have, no, your point was still valid in the sense that when 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 Rome decides we're gonna take Christianity and we're gonna control it, they are they they are doing that. Like it's not they are change. Like it's not like they're doing what the early Christians were doing. Like they did in a sense apolloniaize it. And it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Well, I guess I, I guess uh, so. That's one side of it, which is very interesting in and of itself, and it's so fascinating to look at like what Julian the Apostate actually believed and the fact that he was not a pagan atheist he was a, he was a highly pious man right and he was pulling off a religion that christianity might have grafted itself onto that was already there and and in some sense christianity might have actually been uh a continuation of that religion more than anything in and of itself obviously a synchronization of things yeah. now i'm also wondering about um the other side like this is an awful lot more of an accusation and it's an implying psychological motive like is was christianity how how much does that relate to the fact that judea got destroyed like Judea gets annihilated and are the Christians swirling and is St. Paul like angry and he's sort of like, I want to see Rome fall. It's sort of, how could we describe it? Maybe if you look at the, the world we live in now, could you say that the, the woke people, you know, are they, are, do they maybe have an aggression towards the, the old Western world and they want to see it fall? And is, was there that type of energy in Christianity? And, and was it, did it have that type of movement? These are all interesting questions. And then the thing you brought up about, um, jesus and his his ethos i actually this was lev's point that it, G jesus did have certain parts of his ethos that were unique and novel and nietzsche would accuse those of being part of the slave morality side of it but that's actually very very true as well and so like how do they factor in and how was it just and uh, that stuff too so these are a load of very interesting collages to pull together yeah real quick because uh, i know Lev has to go but um yeah so they actually thought of the jews as the ones who are rejecting jesus at that point so they're not they're now not only anti-Rome, but they're also anti-temple going priestly class. But they, what they're saying, if we read the book of Hebrews, it's very clear. The temple is no more. Jesus is the temple now. So now we and, don't need the temple anymore. We don't need Jerusalem anymore. And how early was this? Like, So I'm trying to think of this from my question. psychology. That, that is probably after the temple fell when they started. So that's, 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 see, that's very interesting because then obviously the the... the, the Judea gets annihilated, and you're saying to me that Christianity really kicks into gear after that because everyone's yeah. like, fuck, that Jesus dude is right. Because the Jesus dude is right, and the priesthood class was wrong. Because why yeah. would God smite yeah. the priesthood class? He has to. That's what happens. 
you could see it. You could sort of see how. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm trying to perceive into because that's what's so fascinating yeah. is actually get your head in there. And so do the Christians turn around and be like, hey, fuck those priests. Yeah. We're going to build a temple again. You got you got us, lost us the temple. And um, the temple now becomes an abstraction. The temple is yeah. now in Christ. Exactly. We, this is actually preparing the Jews to wander. And so they become a nationless people who wander and they follow the temple around and they sort of that's, blend and integrate. That's so interesting. That's such a good observation right there. That's and then, they're now in the desert now. They're now wandering. And at that time, there were like only 600 Jews alive at a certain point. Right, Neil? Like, oh, it was, I don't think so. I don't think it was No? That. It was, no, that's what I read. I'll show you the statistic oh, afterwards. The yeah, there were like very, because, a very small amount. Bar Kokhba. Bar Kokhba happens in the 120s. Yeah, 120s under Hadrian wipes them out. Hadrian goes nuts, dude. He almost wipes them out. Bar Kokhba, millions of Jews were killed. It's people don't talk about that. People talk about 70 AD. 70 AD was nothing compared to 120. Look up when Bar Kokhba happened. What year? Bar Coke. Bar Kokhba. Yeah. Uh, it's giving me a cocktail bar. I probably put that in wrong. <laughs> don't go there, lad. <laughs> Bar Kokhba revolt was 132. I'm sorry, 132. So yeah, 132. Uh, they got wrecked. It said this is what it says for Wikipedia. It says. Uh, 400,000 Jews were killed. I said millions, but yeah, wow. 400,000. That's crazy. Crazy. Compared to 20,000 uh, Romans. 400,000 to 20,000. <laughs> Damn. Wow. Uh, and yeah. so they, they went in. And how, wait, oh, no, no, no. no. 580,000 Jews were killed. 50 fortified towns, 985 villages raised. This is way crazier than 70 AD. Wait, and how does this work then? So are like are these all just the leftover villages in Judea? They obviously so oh, so what must have happened in in seventy is they just they it was they like, it was like World War Two compared to World War One where Germany sat and marinated for a while. That's what the Jews basically did. They sat there, they marinated. Ah. You know, like, you gotta, let's get them back, and they fucked. They got fucked over. They got, it was bad. And 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 if 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 you are right about that four hundred number, which I really that's six hundred. So yeah, if that's true, then it's probably after that. Mm, yeah and then there was the uh integration the intermingling with the eastern europeans i think that so was around the time or, or maybe it was first the italian women because there was a lot of jewish men and italian women or mediterranean women rather who ended up uh, having children so i gotta check when the 600 number comes in either before that uh that actually, so yeah that was actually yeah i was gonna say so no, you have a really small number i think there was only like they traced it like 40 Whoa. Oh, man. Yeah. And yes. it's, uh, the Jews are yeah. always getting whipped on. You have Nebuchadnezzar. You have uh, you have um, Antiochus in the 200s BCE. You have uh, Pompey the Great sacks them in 63 BCE. Then uh, Sosius, Gaius Sosius, gets sent in by Augustus to go shake things up. That happens. That's the fourth time. Then it happens again in 70. Then it happens again in and, and it's And it's so ironic that, like, all of those people, like the uh, Nebuchadnezzars of the world, like the Babylonians, the Romans, the ancient Greeks, where are they now? Like, it's very ironic how no matter who goes against, uh, you know, a very small minority of uh, people, they don't, you know, it doesn't seem yeah. to work. Israel exists right now and Babylon doesn't. That's kind of interesting. Neither does Rome. Yeah. By the way, one last thing. Uh, sorry to report very bad news. And Philip Daniel confirmed this. They were not allowed to eat the pork. So the 160th ruler was called. 
It says, so if a one nice piece of non-kosher meat is added into a cholent, and the cholent, that's a traditional Hungarian Jewish stew made with kidney beans, barley, onions, paprika, and usually meat, uh, with other small pieces of kosher meat, and there is a 160th ratio of non-kosher meat to kosher meat, the pot is still considered kosher, and potatoes and beans are allowed to be consumed, but none of the meat may be consumed. Uh... So I'm sorry to say, fellas, it's over. Okay. Anyway, you guys, should, you get the juice. Yeah, yeah. Jesus, yeah. Jesus the first, the, the first, the first revolt is crazy. I'm just looking yeah. at it here. Like the Jophesis claimed, one million people were killed during the siege of Jerusalem. It's like what? Oh, so that's even more then. Oh, maybe it's, it was worse. Yeah, but okay. I now wait a second. Like the second one that you were Italian might have been actual like military combats, and then the actual civilians on. The top. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, yeah. Because the, the second one was the second one. It looks like it was absolutely down. crazy at that point. Yeah, the second one was 50 towns. So you had Jerusalem getting sacked, which, yeah, that's they're both nuts. They're, it's like that was just a crazy time. If you're li- Oh, the last thing I'm going to say, I promise. This is nuts, though. <laughs> Josephus, you mentioned Josephus. Josephus tells a story about the summer of 70 in, in, in Jerusalem. There was a woman who was in her, in her house, and the Roman legions went to go, and they smelled something cooking. And it was a it was a drought. There's no food. Everyone's dying of starvation. They're all skinny to the bone because the, the whole town is surrounded by Titus Caesar. They can't get out. They can't get imports. They can't have exports. They're all stuck in the city for like a whole entire six months. They're all starving to death. There's a woman in her house and there's something smoking coming out of it. And they're like, oh, it's food. Let's go get it. Let's go steal it from her. The ro- so the robbers ran in there and they, they take out. They look to see what she's cooking. It's her fucking baby. She was going to eat her baby. Damn. It's this is uh, this is so crazy to read about cuz uh, Neil is we're trying to think to try put our heads in their perspective. The Barcoba revolt, there was this guy called Simon Barcoba and yeah. he was super charismatic and he presented himself as the Messiah. Yep. And the Barcoba revolt greatly influenced the course of Jewish history of course because this is when they actually like this is when they eradicated um Judea and turned it into Palestine. Um and it, it indicated the philosophy of the Jewish religion. Despite easing the persecutions of the Jews following Hadrian's death in 138, um, 138 the Romans uh, barred Jews from Jerusalem except for attendance of certain festivals. And um, The Messiah energy, though, started to become abstracted and spiritualized, which is what we were talking about with Christianity. So that was already happening since 70 AD because of the pressure. And even the rabbis, um, they were becoming deeply cautious and conservative. So they didn't want to stoke the fire with Rome. So the Talmud refers to Barcoba as a Ben Kushiba, a derogatory term meaning a deceiver, because he was a false messiah and he was uh, trying to rile everyone up. He was sort of like, you know, QAnon back in the day, trying to rile everyone up and get them to fight against the Romans. And they, everyone seems like to think that that was a bad idea. And of course, once they stoked the Romans, it seems like that was a... Uh, the Romans just went down just mm. brutally hard as a consequence. So that's wait, very well, wait, one more quick question to Neil. Wasn't Titus uh, considered to be the Messiah by some of the Jews who were against all this? Uh, uh, not, not, not the Jews. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but there was Tacitus actually wrote this in his histories that there, there's, a, there's a Jewish Messiah that a star will come out of the east and be the king of the world. So when Titus, when Titus and his dad Vespasian. It's not about Titus. It's about his dad, Vespasian, by mm. the way. When they were in Jerusalem, while they were there conquering, that's when the year of the four emperors went down. That's in 69. Remember that. Nero dies. Mm. Then it goes from then it goes from uh, Galba. He's only there for two months. Otho, two months. Uh, uh, and then Vitellius, that fat 
uh, decadent emperor. He's there for like a month. Then, then all four of them die. And so Vespasian gets hailed as Caesar while he's in the east. So Tacitus says the star will come out of the east. He came out of the east and then went to Rome. So they were like, the Jewish Messiah is Vespasian. So there are people who actually did think that. That, that was a rumor going around. Among the Jews as well, like wasn't there some high up uh, Jewish oh, uh, priest so, or something? Yeah, the the the, uh, the Talmud has a story about this. Mm, so see, there Yohanan, we go. Yohanan ben Zakkai, who is a, I think he's the high priest actually, and he's stuck in Jerusalem the same year I was telling you about where the girl ate her baby. He's stuck in Jerusalem, and he knows that Titus is outside, and he knows he can make a deal and save his life and save some other people's lives if he just go out there and strike a deal. So he pretends to die. Because they're only taking bodies out. They're not taking anything else out except for dead bodies. So he pretends to be a dead body. He sneaks out in the middle of the night, and then he runs up on Vespasian. It says, it's me, Yohanan ben Zakkai. He's like, you are the king. You are the king, as it is prophesied in Isaiah. And then he starts sprout, sprouting out, spitting out Bible verses on him. And Vespasian's like, chill, chill, chill. All right, whatever, bro. I'm like, I am the Messiah. Who gives a fuck? Like, he's like, yeah, I don't give a shit about that. And he's like, what do you want? And he's like, I'll make a deal. Just don't kill me and... Save this city. It's called Yavni, which ends up being the, the home of uh, rabbinic Judaism, where rabbinic Judaism today's Judaism is all because of this dealer right here. So he's like, save the city of Yavni. I'm going there now. Just here. I'll give you the map for the whole city. You can do what you want with it. This will help you out in the war. Boom, boom, boom. He makes a deal. He gets his life saved. That's that. So he did. So, so, so now he's not calling him the Messiah, but he's calling him the king that was promised. And the verses that he uses are actually verses that are used for Christianity, for the Messiah. So in a weird, indirect way, he does call him the Messiah. But was it implied that he was just LARPing, that he was just making it up in order to save the uh, the village? Or was he actually... Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, that's 100% what was going on. Why uh, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah, that's true. Uh, that is very interesting how the entire fate hung in the balance just uh, from this one action of this one dude who pretended to be a dead body. That's, that's yeah, so wild, crazy. Man. What a weird, they, you know, they make movies about Caesar and Alexander. They need to make a movie about like the set, like Israel in the sixties when Nero is go from Nero to Vespasian. Like the HBO series about it. Yeah. There's not enough in the sword and sandal genre. So we definitely got to do it. I haven't seen Ben-Hur yet, by the way. I definitely want to see Ben-Hur soon. So anyway, guys, this is the end of the stream. Plug your, plug your stuff, everybody. Uber Boyo, what do you got to plug? Gentlemen, I just say if there's any boyos following, give Lev a follow and check out Neil. He's like a really good scholar of early Christianity, a lot of very interesting perspectives. And um, of course, classical theists as well. Give him a look. It seems like he is a good Catholic. You know, I've got to support the Catholics around here. So um, thank you very much, gentlemen, and stay juicy. And obviously, Uber Boyo over there on YouTube. So I hope all is well. Excellent. And Neil, what do you got coming up, my friend? Yeah, I just released a video about the orgiastic rites of the mysteries. Um, and I, and I, I did a piece, I, I quoted Clement of Alexandria and his perspective on it. So you have that part of the video too. And, um, yeah, so that's my last video, this video, youtube.com slash Gnostic informant. And that's where it is. Nice. And you can follow me at LevPo, L-E-V-P-O on YouTube. And this has been streaming on YouTube, on Twitch, if you can believe that, on um, Odyssey. This is going to be available on Odyssey after this. Same with BitChute and all the other uh, things. Be sure to smash that subscribe button, smash that like button, smash the bell, share this with all your friends. And that's it. Thank you guys so much for watching. Always appreciate it. Always much love. Next week. 
Ariel Pink and Gnostic Informant. You're back with Ariel Pink talking about the book of fucking Revelation. We're going to go for wait. it. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right, guys. Take care, everybody. Good night. Mwah. Love right. you.